So as uh, for the second session, we're, we're going to talk about user-generated content partly because it is uh, hot. It's probably hot enough to qualify um, as having two Ts at the end um, at the moment. But a lot like something, um, something like, like YouTube or social networking, it's, it's nebulous and no one's really quite sure exactly what it runs to or what the value of it is. And so what I had hoped we could do today is start to work out what the value of that might be. So we have four illustrious panelists, all of whom are doing things in that, in that field. I thought I'd, I'd start down the end. Uh, Rob, if, if we could just do brief kind of, kind of intros sure. and say hi. Happy to, hi. I'm happy to be here. My name is Robert Terzak, and I've been in the entertainment and technology field for 20 years. And I've worked on both sides, uh, new media startup companies, like game startups like Seventh Level, and wireless startups like Packet Video and Mforma and grew those companies. Um, but I've also worked at traditional media companies like MTV, where I launched MTV in 20 countries uh, internationally, and I was the head of on-air branding. And I also worked at Sony Pictures Entertainment, where I was the head of their digital media business during the late 1990s. Um, I'm here today because I'm involved in a new startup company, which unfortunately I'm not able to tell you a great deal about, because we're just closing our financing, and they've asked us to keep a, keep a lid on it. Um, but it is in the category of, of community-generated content and quite specifically, it's about building community around content propositions, which I believe is the future of all branded entertainment. Oh, That's it. Excellent. Thanks. Katarina? I am Katarina Fake. I am the co-founder of Flickr. Um, does everybody know what Flickr is? <laughs> <laughs> OK, good. Um, little known fact, um, or actually, you know, somewhat known fact, uh, we started our company, Ludacorp, to build a massively multiplayer online game. It was a browser-based game. It was a very social game. Um, it was about uh, IM conversations. You could kind of wander around. You could find things. You could put things together. Um, and Flickr actually started off as a side project from that. The original version of Flickr, had, did anybody see the original version of Flickr, which um, became Flickr Live? It was really, really early. Um, it was a uh, live IM client that we had based on some of the game technology that we'd built, which, which enabled you to drag and drop photos into IM conversations. And it was a kind of a cool thing, but it had a critical mass problem. And it wasn't until we um, enabled people to put photos on web pages that Flickr actually really took off. So that was, that, that was kind of Flickr as you know it today. And then we added all of those kind of um, you know, you name the uh, Web 2.0 buzzword, tagging, open APIs, um, you know, participatory media, blah, blah, all those kinds of things um, were, were, were added subsequent to that. And that was what caused the huge uh, explosion of uh, Flickr content, Flickr users, and uh, Flickr Ness. Excellent. Excellent. Gee, would you like me to put it up on the screen? Yes. Hi, my name is Ji Li. I'm the uh, founder of the Bubble Project. Uh, I have a, about 15, 17 minutes, a quick visual presentation about the Bubble Project that I'd like to sh uh, share with you. Uh, the project started about uh, four years ago. Um, I was working as an art director as a in a major international advertising agency in New York. We had some of the big clients, including Procter & Gamble, General Mills, and I worked there for about four years, and uh, uh, it was a great place to work, but the work sucked. Uh, <laughs> and it was very difficult to produce any kind of good work. And uh, it was, I was just getting very frustrated that the kind of ideas 
that were getting produced were very formulaic, boring stuff that quickly filled every corner and every inch of the public space. And I felt the urge of doing something that instantly could transform these boring ads. And the, uh, the answer that I found was producing these uh, bubble, uh, talk bubble stickers. So I spent uh, $3,000 of my own pocket. <laughs> and uh, I started uh, placing these bubbles uh, all over the city of New York and such as these ads, for instance, you're seeing. Uh, this is a Morning Express ad, and uh, this is how these bubbles were placed, such as this. And those. And I just left them blank so that uh, people could write their comments on it. And sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, this, some of these ads were just begging to talk to each other for some strange reason. <laughs> uh, these two monsters uh, got together in the, on the platform of New York subway. And uh, so it was really funny. Uh, after doing it about uh, three or four months, in the beginning, I didn't, I didn't know what kind of response people would write. I knew, only thing I knew is that if I left them empty, someone would eventually fill it in with something. Uh, I just didn't know what kind of response I would get. Uh, For my surprise, uh, people wrote comments really quickly, and uh, quickly I had hundreds and, and almost thousands of pictures. Uh, I started collecting them. I realized they formed natural grouping of themes. So I divided this uh, 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 collection into different themes, and these are some of the samples that you see. Social commentary is one of the themes. Uh, shut up and shop. <laughs> Annual rights. Uh, and the, on the top left corner, uh, somebody, someone else wrote, Mike Tyson bit my ear off. Are <laughs> uh, we white yet? Uh, media and fashion, another category. I steal music, uh, and I'm not going away. We were talking about that in the previous panel, Paris issue. Uh, the next one, what am I going to do when I'm 23, says Mark from DKNY. <laughs> I'm hideous deformed, <laughs> says Madden. So a lot of these uh, comments actually spoke to simple truth, which in this context became very humorous. I've had so much plastic surgery it hurts. And someone else wrote, look, I'm John Rivers. <laughs> uh, politics and religion. What country would Jesus bomb? Uh, another truth comes up. Hi, Bush. Catch me, Jesus. This is, uh, the next one is uh, Dalai Lama speaking Tibetan. Uh, very popular subject. I used to smoke crack on the sixth train. <laughs> J-Lo. I use it to download porn. <laughs> I lost my other hump to cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen my nipple? <laughs> And I realized that, uh, the true meaning behind this writing uh, recently that uh, the original Starbucks logo had nipples. <laughs> so that was a, the reference to the original logo, you know, the good old days. Um, 
I fucked Fred and I fucked Barney, so before and after effects. Art and philosophies, and people also drew inside the bubble. They didn't only write on it, in this case. Made a nice camouflage. And other people decided to make their own bubbles and put it into a bigger bubble. Humor. Please let me die in peace. In India, they're sacred, but this ain't India, bitch. <laughs> personal messages. And people also wrote lovely personal messages, like here, I love you, Jessica Meyer. And other people used the bubble to communicate their own messages, such as this. Uh, it was a play in the East Village uh, called I Was a Quality of Life Violation, giving all the details of the play. So what I was really intrigued by this uh, uh, expression was that uh, you know, this billion-dollar corporate monologue would instantly transform to a public dialogue through this simple device. Uh, and I realized also that a lot of people started to do their own bubble and stick it into uh, different ads with their own messages. So these are some of the examples. Uh, I launched the bubbleproject.com uh, almost, almost a year ago. And uh, uh, there are two parts of the website. One is the street bubbles, and the other one is online bubbles. Online bubbles, uh, each week I select a bubble person of the week, and I place an empty bubble so users can type in their own bubble, uh, own messages. So it's a way that uh, uh, people can put their own content. Instead of being passive recipient of the media content, they become active participants. Uh, and sometimes, you know, what would the soldier have to, to say to Rumsfeld who visiting Iraq, other than Rumsfeld telling something to the soldier? Um, and also, not always is a person. Uh, this time was uh, uh, Pluto, <laughs> who got demoted after billions of years. You know, poor Pluto. I'm sure he has a, a lot to say about the decision by the people of Earth. Uh, these are some of the responses. You can see there are a lot of international people who are participating in this uh, project. You can also download the template uh, from the website, and uh, you can print it on your printer and cut it in your, and bubble your own town. Um, and the, really, the turning point for the bubble project happened uh, uh, when the bubble project was mentioned at boingboing.net, the world's largest blog website. Uh, in the beginning, before it was mentioned, I was that the site got about 40, 60 visitors a day. Uh, one day I came to check the, the numbers of visitors and it jumped to over 50,000 visitors. And that's because of the mentioning at the boingboing.net. So it was a big turning point. And since then, the project really spread throughout different parts of the world and people are bubbling their own cities and sending pictures uh, of their own bubbles. And these are some of the places that uh, the bubble project were mentioned. Um, the book was launched with uh, some of the best bubbles, and this is a quick video that uh, I would like to share if it works, but I guess it's not working, so I'm just going to uh, end with that. Thank you very much. Sorry. Yeah, sure. Sorry. Oh, well, I can talk to the wall. No, 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 don't talk to the wall. Okay. Don't talk to the wall. Talk to the people out here. <laughs>
it's Shall I start? Yeah, sorry. <coughs> Let me start Th again. So, yeah, thanks, G, because that, that was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, hi, uh, my name's uh, Kevin Barrett, and I'm the Director of Design at uh, BioWare uh, in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And uh, BioWare is a creator of, oh, my voice suddenly came in. Uh, BioWare is a creator of uh, uh, computer-based role-playing games. Some of you may be familiar with the products. And um, when I started uh, in the games industry, let's say back around 1985 or so, uh, there was no computer game industry at that time. There were computer game hobbyists, and there were some kits that you could get, and so on and so forth. But really, no, no industry as we know it today. Uh, PS3 was launched today, uh, as you know, and uh, the Wii launches in a couple of days, and Xbox 360 has been out for a little while, and, and uh, it seems like computer games have been with us forever, uh, but they haven't. It's relatively new, and I was interested in the subject of user-generated content because when I started uh, in the adventure game industry in, in 85, uh, was working at a, a pen and paper role-playing game company, uh, user-generated content wasn't something that was an anomaly or an interesting thing to study or something to talk about. It was, in fact, 100% required. Uh, if uh, the adventure game industry or the role-playing game industry at that time uh, wouldn't have gone anywhere if it wasn't for uh, user-generated content. And in fact, in uh, 1980, I believe it was uh, Dungeons & Dragons, which some of you may be familiar with. There's a pen and paper role-playing game. Uh, was the hottest-selling Christmas toy uh, for that year to be followed in 81 by Cabbage Patch Dolls. But uh, anyway, uh, when, uh, when we talk about user-generated content, in the context of the game industry, it doesn't seem unfamiliar or odd at all to talk about the existence of user-generated content. It's a given. So uh, there we go. Which is, which is a good place to start. What do we mean when we talk about user-generated content? I mean, what does, the, what does the phrase refer to? When we, were building, um, when we were building our game that we started the company to build, which was called Game Never Ending, am I on the mic? Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, we had um, user-generated content was, was kind of a, a basic principle of the game. So people could kind of create these objects that they could interact with other players with. So, you know, an example of that would be you could get, like, a wombat whistle and you blow the, the, the wombat whistle and all of these, like, baby wombats would come and cuddle up next to you. Or um, you, could, you, could, um, you, know, you could get a venture capital and a web and a hype, put them all together, make a new economy, go into a crowded room, deploy your new economy, Everyone around you would go broke and you would get very rich. And so these kinds of things were like, like and so all of the users in the game could create these objects. They could, they could kind of like think of some kind of like little clever trick. You know, you could, you could make a little, um, little object. You know, you say, you know, you say, you know, your uncle, your uncle Joe, you know, he consists of beer and jelly beans mm. and Monday night football. And, you know, you can kind of create a little, little object that is your uncle Joe. And um, these kinds of things were, um, were not only fun, but they, they allowed people to kind of like express their, their creativity. And I think that you know, these kinds of things are bringing us back to an era um, you know, of when the producer and the consumer are indistinguishable from another. Like you know, you know, back in the 18th century when there's there this kind of like an artisan culture and everyone participated in barn raisings and quilting bees and you know, scrimshaw. Like people would, mm. people would just kind of do these things and it was not known who was the, who was the creator. And I think that I actually, I actually brought up a picture here which if we can um, bring it up. Yep. Can you guys see this? That's what they're saying. Straight ahead. How do I get, get it back to the, oh wait, I wanted to not do that. 
<laughs> this, this is not a natural state of affairs. <laughs> but this, I think, is. So here you see a bunch of people, you know, kind of sitting around in the living room, playing the banjo, making music together. And this was, this used to be how music was made. It used to be that people knew how to play an instrument, whether that be, you know, the triangle or the maracas, you know, or it was a piano or an organ. Like, this was a kind of participative, like, this is how you made culture. This is how you made music. This is how you made art. Um, this is how you made things. And um, I think that user-generated content, in many ways, is a return to this kind of activity. Rob? So I think for the purpose of this discussion, there's uh, you know, broad, one of the broad themes here this weekend is about participatory media or participatory culture. Uh, and then encompasses a broad range of interactive media. A subset of that is the media that we create as users. Uh, you know, the participatory media can include anything from voting and polling, you know, for instance, when you're watching American Idol or playing a video game. But there's a subset of active, highly active users who actually want to contribute to what they're enjoying, what they're playing. They want to create, Flickr is an example of a huge, broad mass phenomenon when you've got millions of people with digital cameras. And it's pretty easy for them to upload, then they're going to want to share. Uh, a more, maybe a little bit more arcane from the, in the average person's point of view example would be Second Life, where you now have these you know, subsets of people that actually generate, uh, you know, they build out limited edition digital objects and they, they generate a little economy inside of the game, much like Katrina's example. Mm. Uh, but I think, I think the two terms are confused sometimes, or blurred, in the sense that not all participatory media involves user-generated media, and that's the distinction I'm trying to make. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, gee, what I find interesting about your work is that you were frustrated by the lack of back channel or the, or the lack of response. And so what you did was create an architecture, essentially, yeah. into which other people can, can be given a voice. And, and Katarina, to talk firstly about Flickr, but secondly about your initial game, it was essentially building an architecture, which yeah. is, is, Rob, what you're suggesting when you talk about, about Second Life less so. It's about... This idea of, of user-generated content makes the activity um, or, or the object that is produced the architecture into which people are then given free reign or, or less free reign to, to participate. Um, the, the question I have is why at this point is there such growing interest in providing these architectures rather than continuing to produce restricted closed products? Uh, I think the previous panel demonstrated clearly that the economics, uh, the traditional economics of content production are falling off a cliff. You know, the cost of producing a TV show is absurdly high relative mm -hmm. to the return, and that, that, those economics aren't getting better anytime soon, despite maybe the, the, the comments to the contrary by the representative from CBS. Uh, I don't see a very bright future for broadcast television in the future. Uh, if you're going to be producing content on the web, you've, you've got to drive cost out. One way to do that is to push the cost of content creation over to the consumer. I realize the terms I'm using sound fairly harsh, but I think there's an economic reality behind this. The second aspect of that, of course, is the ubiquity now of connectivity and a great deal of processing power and the low cost uh, of content creation for consumers. You know, the uh, phenomenal tools, the high resolution, the cameras, uh, the ability for people to produce great desktop video uh, using prosumer equipment. So the, the, the threshold of getting in as a content creator is, is much lower uh, and the ability to distribute now has been trivialized, so anyone can upload to any number of sites and publish and distribute their own content. So you've got this, uh, the cost has been pushed out on the one hand, and, and uh, thresholds have been lowered on the other hand. I also think that there's, um, you know, a kind of a general exhaustion with 
um, kind of mass consumer culture. I think that you know this sort of um, the sameness, you know, the kind of monocultural kind of like you go to the mall and like you know. It, 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 everybody's dressed the same and everybody looks the same and all of the clothes are the same and everything that you can buy is the same and you actually have a fairly limited choice. It's kind of this interesting phenomenon. Like you go to the supermarket and you see, you know, what seems like choice. Like you, you go and you see that there's two kinds of toothpaste. There's Colgate and there's Crest. And it, but each of them has like kind of, you know, Crest with sparkles, crest without sparkles, crest with you know whitener, crest with you know like twenty nine. But they're all basically the same. They're all essentially the same. And so I think that you know a lot of what is is kind of emerging here is this sort of like desire for personal expression, individuality. Um, you know that every human being has. Everybody everybody wants to be kind of you know distinguishable. Mm. Um, you know from the mass. And um, I think that this is this is this is a, a, a way of doing that. Gee, do you see an opportunity in advertising for user-generated content? Absolutely. I think that's, you know, that's what all advertisers are trying to uh, uh, getting into. Uh, I worked four years in this traditional advertising agency, and uh, the model of traditional ads, as the panel before we're talking about, is not simply not working because they all look the same. They all sort of come from the cookie-cutter sort of mentality. People don't want to watch these boring ads. And... Uh, uh, so more, more and more agencies are trying to find what is that one way to uh, connect with the consumers. I was re reading an article uh, when I was coming here about the Chevy Tahoe, who uh, started a, a website encouraging uh, you know, their users to make their own commercials for, for Chevy Tahoe. So they put up their uh, footages of you know, their car, the Chevy Tahoe cars and different features, and they encouraged the users to put together a commercial, and in the end of, I don't know, six weeks, they would, they would elect the, the, the winner. And uh, they got a lot of uh, negative uh, feedback on it, and people are just, you know, doing just really cynical commercials about global warming. Gas guzzlers. All that yeah. stuff. It was but, nasty. Yeah, but in the end, it really drove a, a lot of consumers to their website, and in the end, it was considered a huge success because there were over 600,000 visitors to their website who spent more than nine minutes uh, 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 in the website and ended up driving also a lot of traffic to the Chevy.com website. So I think it's really interesting when companies so big as Chevy are trying, trying to open themselves and creating a kind of a, a dialogue instead of the traditional form of advertising, which is sort of just shouting at consumers and, and, and you know, trying to just tell them what to do. So this new model of dialogue is really something that uh, 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 corporations are taking risk. But uh, I think that's the future that, that they can connect to their consumers. And so what are the risks associated in, in opening up? I mean, this is essentially a question of control. And, it is and control. It's, it's interesting you bring up the Chevy example, because what Chevy did was open up control over the advertiser message to its users or consumers or audiences or however we choose to construct them. Um, and what they got back um, was not exactly what they were expecting. Right. And so as much as there is opportunity to engage, um, uh, particularly in an audience, I'm interested in, in, in how you weigh up the opportunities and the risks when you're trying to build into uh, a business model um, this idea of user-generated content. I, th I, think, I think it's, uh, it's very similar to a personal conversation. So when corporations talk to consumer, it's almost like, me talking to a friend of mine, if I'm just telling the friend of mine what I want to say, 
it's not a dialogue. I'm not really finding out much about the person, and the friend is not really finding out much about myself. So by creating a dialogue, you're also giving up your control and listening to what other people have to say. Kevin? From the, uh, on the game side, um, there's opportunities and risks yep. uh, when, you, uh, when you open up. And as I indicated in, in my opening comments, uh, obviously, it's very natural uh, for our industry in particular to want uh, this user-generated content. The opportunities, uh, obviously, from our perspective, are in uh, uh, community generation. And uh, at uh, Bioware, uh, our online community is, uh, I guess, uh, people who are registered to our website. These would be customers, people who play our games, and so on and so forth. Might be at uh, 3.2 million right now, and we're adding about 50,000 a month. And this is in a year when we're not releasing any games. So uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of uh, interest uh, in our products and, mm -hmm. and uh, stuff that's uh, coming out. And um, what we found uh, when we, uh, it would have been a, uh, about five years ago when we decided to put out uh, Neverwinter Nights. Can I just take a quick straw poll to find out if I'm speaking an alien language to anybody. Is anyone <laughs> familiar with the Aurora Engine or Neverwinter Nights as a content generation system for game production? Okay, so let's say that there's 20 people in the audience who are familiar with it, that's great. Um, uh, the Aurora Engine that shipped with Neverwinter uh, was a very, very powerful tool uh, for content generators and was intended specifically for uh, those, uh, those consumers to create uh, in a manner uh, similar to what they would have done back in the 70s and 80s when they would have been sitting in their parents' basements and creating adventures for their, for their friends to run through, uh, killing dragons and trolls and so on and so forth. Uh, we wanted to uh, uh, empower uh, players and, and uh, consumers of our products to have that same type of experience uh, with, the, uh, with the ability to use a very, very powerful tool set to create uh, their own adventures in an electronic environment. And, um, and what that does is it creates this great community. And uh, you get a lot, I mean, a lot of hobbyists who get together and they want to compare the, the quality of work that they've done. Obviously, a, a lot of uh, dominance uh, uh, assertion uh, behaviors uh, come into play here. But uh, you get a lot of, uh, of, of hobbyists uh, who are, are generating material. And uh, so if I was to say that we had uh, currently about 3.2 million registered users uh, uh, on the Bioware sites, uh, maybe only 1% right now, uh, say, well, 1% of 3 million, say 300,000, are actually generating, um, did I do that math right? 30,000? No, 30,000, 30, thanks. Uh, our, uh, <laughs> <laughs> our, uh, our generating material uh, uh, for the site and for use by other people. But in fact, our, uh, our stats uh, are tracking that 20% uh, of our user base is actually uh, digging into that content and using it. And uh, so that's a, that's a, a tremendous uh, kind of uh, amount of positive feedback uh, that we get uh, from our user groups. And uh, and that material uh, that's being generated uh, can be a piece that's as short as perhaps 20 minutes or half an hour of, of adventuring, uh, or as long as 20 hours of content that uh, these people are, are laboring over. 
So there's, uh, there's, there's tons, uh, there's tons and tons of, of opportunities there for community building. And, and uh, obviously, if 80% of our customers like our games as is, and they go in and they just want to play them and, and experience that game and put it away and, and go away, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. They've paid their money. They can do whatever they like. Uh, but uh, if 20% of them want to consume that extra product, uh, that's, uh, that's going to increase over time. And as the tools become more powerful and, and as the, uh, the, the content becomes better and better, um, then uh, that percentage is likely to rise. Um, but uh, the risks uh, come along with this. And uh, of course, in the, uh, the game industry, the biggest risk is that the content that's generated by uh, the users is 99% uh, ass. I mean, it's just, it's awful. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't it, matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. Uh, so uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later. But uh. Yeah, Rob, did you want to pick this up? So yeah, my thought about this is that, uh, there, there, there are two different architectures. This is back to your comment about architectures. Mm. You can have an architecture that invites participation, and, or you can create an architecture that's all about control, even if it superficially invites participation. Uh, you know, for example, the, the, the General Motors spot that G referred to is an example, really, of an architecture of control. They're saying, here, come create a TV commercial. We're going to give you a bunch of shots of our SUV, and you can edit them and create your own tagline. But the shots are limited, and they're all beautifully filmed and with high production values. They're going to extol, you know, visually extol the virtues of this truck. Uh, you know, the response to that is fairly limited, and so it's not surprising that there was a kind of a backlash. It reminds me of um, an anecdote from the film industry where John Huston was under very tight studio control, which he resented when he was shooting on location, and they were creating their own edit of his picture uh, while he was shooting on location in the desert. And so he ended up shooting only shots, only enough shots that there was no choice for the editor but to edit exactly <laughs> what he was filming. And so this is, uh, this is a means of control by limiting, limiting choice and limiting the, the, the modes of participation, I suppose. Um, other, other websites don't do that. Uh, you know, that's certainly a characteristic of Web 2.0 site is that it seems to op it open itself up for participation in some form or another. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons why traditional media companies have failed consistently to create an effective or meaningful presence on the web because they fundamentally aren't set up to get it. They aren't set up to understand what, the, what this medium does. Broadcast media is not about participation. Broadcast media is about sit there and listen while we talk. A little bit like this panel so far. <laughs> uh, Keep it up, Rick. TV companies. <laughs> Keep going. TV companies aren't great at listening to their audiences. Uh, they haven't really cultivated that as a habit, and they haven't really created a lot of facility for their audiences to respond to them except by changing the channel. Increasingly, those audiences are doing that. They're migrating away from television altogether. As a result, they're, they're seeking out a platform where they can uh, comment, respond, participate in some fashion. Uh, yeah, of course, TV companies are trying to bolt on some means you know, of voting or something, but it's all fairly um, trivial, and, and I think consumers are smart enough to see through that. Uh, and it's mostly a rearguard action to, to shore up a crumbling business model. But at any rate, the architecture of television as a one-way uh, broadcast medium is not really set up to invite participation or response. Uh, and, and some and consumers are mo moving with their feet, voting with their feet, I suppose, to move to other platforms where they can immerse themselves if that's what they desire to do. Katarina, did you want to pick up on this? Well, I mean, one of the things that I think um, you know, is necessary if you're going to have user-contributed content and um, you know, sort of openness and a participatory platform is that you 
essentially be honest with the users. And I brought up this blog post on the Flickr blog because this is this is kind of an example of that. You know, like they know we suck. Um, you know, we were down for three days, or I don't know, we were down for like a few days before this post went up, and you know, things were getting kind of hairy and haywire. And you know, a lot of the time, you when you're in your dealings with you know large companies, there's this sort of blanket de denial. I know when my DSL goes down at home, and I call up you know Singular or Verizon or whoever actually handles my. DSL these days, they're like generally in denial that there's anything wrong. I'm like, no, I know there's something going on over here, and um, you know that isn't communicated to you know the whole organization. And you know when you when you are able to as a company to you know kind of fess up essentially and just say, yeah, you know this is this sucks and we we feel your pain and uh, you know you know. Uh, you know, just be honest. I mean, it's it's kind of a refreshing change from um, the way that companies generally treat their users. And you know, this I mean, it's it's kind of an, an amazing thing because you know, you know, to to a large extent, if you go down to the comments, I believe all these people kind of like you know left leapt to our support, mm -hmm. and um, you know, you know, and 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 we're very kind of in in some ways enthusiastic. About the downtime, I mean, like you, you would never really expect that to be the outcome, but people were very forgiving because we had the, you know, cojones to say like that we screwed up. Mm. And one of the, one of the phrases that often goes hand in hand with with notions of user generated content is this idea of community. Um, and I I suppose what I want to ask is, does it matter if all the users don't participate? Uh, uh, Kevin, you, you were saying that like if one percent of your user base creates content, that's Thirty thousand out of three and a half million, or however many it is, yeah. and I'm not a math major, um, and never was. Um, but but on on top of that, twenty percent of your user base might actually engage with this user generated content. In fact, are yes. And yeah. so and so, what it, it raises something I think is missed from the user generated content debate, which is the notion that there are degrees of engagement, and and if we say that user generated content is the production of items in a world, then that might narrow the way we understand user-generated content itself? Yeah, um, well, I don't know how to specifically to answer that, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw out just a couple more stats. Um, uh, the most popular download uh, that we've had um, for, uh, for our five-year-old game uh, was uh, 450,000 uh, downloads of a community expansion pack. And the community expansion pack was simply a, um, a gathering of uh, 1,000 new monster types and 3,000 new item types, which included armor and chairs and swords and helmets and capes and wombats or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, people, people uh, want uh, to consume that product and uh, just see what's in there. And you know what? If... Uh, let's say 30,000 people are generating modules, but you have almost half a million people downloading the community expansion pack, it's not because they're generating content. It's because they're interested in finding out what the rest of the community is building. Uh, they want to find out where they stack up. Uh, what's interesting in there? Is, is there a little item that I could add to my campaign or my setting or, or my game that, uh, that might be of interest to me? Which raises the question, will, um, and this is one of the, the criticisms of, of user-generated content, um, is the notion that, that amateur-produced material will never replace professional-produced material. How, how do you respond to that? I don't know if I'd, I'd agree with that, because I, I, mean, I do think that you know, a lot of, a lot of um, what we're seeing um, is that people have now have, it used to be prohibitively expensive to buy a digital camera. 
And you know, this really high-level equipment used to be only accessible to professionals and um, you know the people that could afford these things. And I think that you know one of the significant things that is that has changed is that you know the, the prices have come down and down and down. And and um, you know it's now within the reach of people. If somebody has a very strong interest in you know photography or videography or even game design, they they now have access to the tools and, and can create these things themselves. And so I think that you know any day of the week, a hundred you know amateurs are going to beat out a professional. Um, you, you see that kind of happening over and over and over again. It's certainly true that 20 years ago there was an orthodoxy about how, how professional content was created. And a lot of those rules have been broken. Uh, you know, some of it started before the web really took off as a consumer phenomenon. Um, certainly when I was at MTV working in Asia, I dealt with a lot of editors who were trained by the BBC and they had a very structured process in how video was created and how it was edited. And we were doing things like slamming together audio tracks and overlapping voiceovers. And this was like verboten. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't cooperate with it. They, you know, the editors wouldn't want to edit that way because it wasn't out of the BBC handbook of how, how video was production. It was considered, um, it was considered renegade or, or sloppy or a, a guerrilla style production. Um, by and large, those techniques have now infiltrated even traditional, uh, the traditional bastions of broadcast, including the BBC. And now um, those, those techniques have been adopted. The, you know, the abundance of reality TV today is an illustration of that. So I guess the, um, the, the uh, strongholds of traditional media have been penetrated by enough uh, low-quality programming, not just things like you know, uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. Um, but you know, even like, look, Viacom just bought uh, iFilm, so they're you know they're they're buying user-generated content sites in order to feed their own their own distri distribution apparatus. Uh, so I think that it's safe to say that the the um, this distinction is no longer binary. It's it's more of a, a spectrum of possibility. And even in a you know even in a Jay Leno show today, now you'll see Jay Leno obviously you know great broadcast quality programming. Uh, but then he'll throw to a special segment on YouTube, and they're showing completely grainy, terrible video from YouTube, but funny, and it fits his show. And so there's a kind of mingling, and consumers seem to expect that. And a, um, it, it just doesn't seem to pose as many issues for consumers. Discussion, perhaps, for a minute. Um, when we talk about the, the increase of, of amateur productions, are we looking at a greater diversity of producers? Absolutely. Oh, sorry, a, a greater diversity of products. Yeah, I think that that's safe to say as well. I mean, does anyone feel strongly differently? I think. Even television has been responsive to the trends in a way, a weird way, responsive to the web, uh, you know, in, in, in innovation and in, in introducing new show formats, even changing the lengths of shows and so forth. The lengths of TV spots have changed as well. There's a, probably the most conservative element. Um, you know, certainly with, uh, with music, you've seen this incredible flourishing of music, different types of mu different formats, uh, much greater diversity of, of music consumption. You know, your typical your typical teenager or college student today listens to a much broader range of music formats and music types and genres than previous generations did, and it has a great deal to do, strangely, with file sharing because it actually served as a, a form of viral promotion or exposure to music formats that you know, those people typically never would be exposed to it and previously. And so, as a result, uh, you know, the, the consumer adoption has has been expanded. Through, uh, through the barriers of distribution and creation being knocked down. And as uh, consumer audiences expanded, the appetites increased, and then more people start to produce. What, one of the things that was interesting on Flickr is that um, sometime in 2005, there was a huge influx of um, teenagers from the United Arab Emirates suddenly uploading 
photos to Flickr. And it was an enormous, enormous, enormous community. All of these kind of, you know, teenagers largely from um, Dubai. And this was not a group of people that, you know, probably had had a lot of, um, you know, exposure in the West. I mean, these are, these, it's, not, it's not a culture that we, we see a lot of. And it was, a, it was kind of like a fascinating phenomenon. And so you would see, and you, know, you would kind of go to the kind of most recently uploaded photos pages and like, you know, just a, a huge slew of those photos were coming from United Arab Emirates, which was, which was you know, not really, you know, not, not, not very common, you know, prior to that time. So, and we see all of these, you know, kind of smaller kind of, you know, communities, you know, suddenly kind of appearing, mm. um, which you hadn't really, you know, had much exposure to before. Because it's, it's a question about giving visibility to the user base that you don't, that you don't realize exists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I want to ask you a question about tagging. Uh, because there's another segment or another aspect of consumer-generated content, and that's meta-commentary. That's con commentary about the content. And so you know, not everybody is going to take a great photo, and certainly very few people are going to be able to take great video and, and upload it. Um, but just about everybody's got an opinion about a picture. And, and tagging is a way then for just about everybody to chime in with their own view. And so you have two layers of user-generated content in a site like Flickr. Uh, you certainly you're going to be able to speak to this better than I can. But the notion there is, you know, one person might upload a photo, another person might find that beautiful, and they comment beautiful, you know, they add the tag beautiful, and then you have this kind of neat process where you can stroll through Flickr and find out what hundreds of millions of people think beautiful might be. We, we've actually built a system which um, um, people may be, be familiar with here um, called interestingness. And interestingness is basically a, a collection of algorithms that basically look at the behavior around, it looks at user behavior and it looks at kind of, you know, what happens around a photo. So does this photo get blogged? Does this photo get blogged by your mother? Does this, you know, photo get blogged by a complete stranger? Is this, you know, the kind of photo that, um, you know, people will pick out of a full page of photos, you know, above all others? And it, it kind of like takes all of these things into account and, um, you know, surfaces the most interesting, um, you know, photos of the week of the day of, of, you know, a certain tag. So you look at a tag for, um, you know, Tokyo, or you look for a tag for bicycle or goat or shoelace or whatever you can think of, and you can find, you know, whatever the, um, you know, user kind of activity around these photos has determined is the most interesting, um, interesting photo. And, and um, you know, tagging is, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that are taken in, into account in this. Tagging is, is one of those things. There's also comments. There's, um, you know, views, just, just views, yeah. like simply views, although. Um, and, and here's an interesting thing, is that we, we very deliberately decided not to have any explicit rating systems. It was really interesting, because one of the things um, that was, you know, you know, probably one of the most requested features on Flickr at the, at the outset was ratings. You know, we want to be able to give these things thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, five stars, whatever. And we were, we were very adamant about not adding this feature because, you know, I put up a picture of, you know, me. This ain't, you know, hot or not. Like, I do not want to know, you know, I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want to be rated, you know. And, you know, the more you have these sort of explicit rating systems, the more likely it is that people will game them. The more likely it is that if it's, if it's kind of like out there in the open, you know, they'll log on, they'll make 20 accounts, they'll like star their photo to try to kind of move it up the, up the rank. And so it's kind of like, you know, all of these are algorithms that you, that you write, you know, this is very clear with, you know, things like, you know, page rank and, you know, flicker interestingness. It's an arms race for, like, you know, of the, you know, the, um, 
the, the, the coders versus the, the people who are trying to game the system and get their stuff up there. And so the less explicit your, your ratings system, mm. um, the better off you are mm. in okay. general. But don't you think that's changed from side to side? In the case of Flickr, it's a much more personal website where uh, in, uh, let's say, YouTube, where there's thousands and thousands of videos. And well, we all know like what kind of videos are going to be at the top if you actually just let it go but it's, free. It's, also <laughs> like it's, it's not going to be nice. It's, it's also different <laughs> to a site like Dig, where, where the user-generated aspect is the rating system itself. I mean, Flickr is, it contains content that users produce, like you say, a photo of you. So the question of, of rating it, it becomes a valuation question of the, the participants' work. Whereas if you go to a site like Dig, um, where people post you know, bits of news, then the social ranking is you know, the, the interestingness of this to the community or the value of this which is, story. Which is why Dig has, you know, is confronting so much you know, um, gaming. Yeah, I mean that, that, that's kind of that's kind of like the thing with Dig is that it's it's like it's it's become you know kind of part of the, the one of their biggest problems is that it's being so heavily gamed mm. by its mm. users. Mm. Kevin, did you want to? <laughs> yeah, with with technical technical difficulties overcome, I can uh, rewind the discussion back to uh, the previous question, um, which, in anticipation of coming here, uh, was something along the lines of uh, can amateur content. Uh, replace the need for professional content. And uh, this, uh, uh, relating to games, is, uh, is a very uh, interesting uh, concept. And I thought I would uh, take the opportunity uh, to, uh, to let everyone uh, that would come to the conference into uh, some secrets and teach them all, all how to be game designers, if they, if they wanted to be. So um, if you'll uh, uh, entertain me for a few minutes, I'll just uh, run you through uh, a quick PowerPoint uh, that I put together. Um, uh, about this question, which I find very interesting. I'll, I'll preface with a couple of uh, caveats. Uh, the first one is, is that uh, up in Canada, we don't get all the good um, uh, politically uh, training in political correctness that, uh, that uh, seems to come part and parcel with corporate society down here. So if I'm, if I'm a bit irreverent, uh, please excuse me and uh, feel free to berate <laughs> me uh, outside after the, uh, after the talk. Uh, secondly, um, I'm going to delve a little bit into um, some uh, armchair anthropology. I know there's plenty of uh, very intelligent people uh, in the audience who will be baffled uh, by uh, what I'll talk about here um, because there's no science to it at all. But uh, if, uh, if, if you'll just entertain me uh, uh, for, uh, for a moment. Um, I'd like to talk about a theory uh, that I read about uh, a couple of years ago, and it was a fantastic theory and, and works well as a theory. And, and, and as such, it, um, it, uh, it explains things well and allows you to predict things well, um, uh, but it's uh, completely unprovable. So I'll just uh, move ahead. So uh, what I want to say is that uh, amateur content producers uh, would need to understand the goal of professional game design, uh, which is producing something fun as opposed to producing something cool. Now, here's what happens. When I, when I said that 99% of, of game content that gets created for, uh, let's say, Neverwinter or for, um, and, and, not, and honestly, uh, not so much for, uh, for other game engines that are, that are out there, uh, generally, uh, someone will delve into a, a game engine uh, or, or a game tool set and uh, say, wow, I can uh, set everything on fire. That is so 
cool. Uh, and so they'll create it and they'll put it up and, and post it and people will look at it uh, for about five minutes and say, wow, that's really cool. But can, can that type of uh, user-generated content actually replace professional uh, content? Because what the professional is concerned about is, is it fun? And so uh, if, uh, if uh, you can indulge me, I'll, uh, I'll give you a lesson on how to be a, a game designer and, and uh, what fun is all about here. So uh, what is fun? Obviously, you can go to Wikipedia or you can go to a dictionary or whatever, and you'll get all sorts of definitions which wind up being very circular uh, about this, uh, this question about what fun is. Because it says it's something that's entertaining. You go, to, well, what's entertaining? Oh, it's something that's fun and so on and so forth. And that conversation goes around and around and uh, isn't very productive. So um, there's been uh, some academic research in the game industry. Now, honestly, the game industry, you're talking about an industry that's maybe professionally, maybe 15 years old. So it's very, it's very young. And so um, uh, academics hasn't quite caught up uh, or is in the process of catching up with, with where games are right now. And so there's a lot of academic questions being answered, asked about uh, games, and they're not being answered very well. But there are some papers that are starting to come out. And two years ago, I read this paper by Noah Falstein called his uh, Natural Funnativity Theory, which doesn't sound very scientific. But it's, uh, as I said, as a theory, it worked really well. So I'll just run through it here, uh, fun, the natural history of fun. Okay, so in order to... Uh, uh, please, you know what? Two and a half hours is an awfully long time to sit through anything. So uh, if you're not interested in, in this, please go to the bathroom now. Can I, can I yeah. the bathroom? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go after this. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I sat through the first one this morning. I had to go twice. <laughs> so and anyway, in order to understand the natural history of fun, we have to go, we have to go way back to the dawn of prehistoric time. Okay, so uh, this theory, as all good theories should, starts with an anecdote. Uh, three cavemen go antelope hunting. Uh, now, uh, oddly enough, these are the same three guys who started, tried to start the human race. And uh, so we have uh, a natural history of fun developing around what these three guys did. Now, our first fella, who we'll call uh, Arg, uh, now, we have photographic evidence of this. So uh, now, mind you, uh, he's got a small packer, but don't hold that against him because he has a huge job ahead of him. He's got to start the human race. What is his personality type? He uh, comes back from hunting. Uh, he's out uh, on the, on the uh, savanna. He picks up uh, an antelope. He brings it back to his, uh, brings it back to his camp. And uh, there's enough meat uh, for three days uh, with all of his tribal members. And uh, he says, uh, that's great, but uh, I'll have my first meal and I'll see you later. I'm running back out to kill another antelope. So he uh, heads uh, straight back out again, uh, out onto the savannah. Our second uh, caveman we do not have a photographic record of, so we're using this artist's rendition. And uh, his name is uh, Blug. Uh, Blug has a different personality type. He comes back uh, to the camp uh, with the antelope and um, uh, he says, well, geez, there's meat for three days. I'm going to sleep. He eats his meal, and then he rests for three days, knowing that he does not have to hunt again for three days. So that's, uh, that's his personality type. And then we have our th uh, third and final caveman who's trying to start up the human race, um, somewhat more sophisticated. Uh, his name is Charles. Uh, his, uh, his brain is wired uh, somewhat differently. Uh, he comes back to the camp uh, with the antelope, and he um, uh, has his first meal, and he says, well, I don't have to hunt for three days, um, so I'm not going back out onto the savanna. 
Um, but he uh, sits there the following morning and he uh, knocks up a wooden model of an antelope and he sets it up there and he walks back 30 paces and he picks up a rock and he throws it at the uh, model of the antelope and eventually he knocks it over and eventually he uses a spear. And then he tells his other tribe members kind of what he did to catch the last antelope. I snuck up on it like this and then I threw my spear here and then I slit his throat and I drank his blood and you can see it, it's, it's in my beard and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and then uh, after uh, three days, when he needs to eat again, uh, he heads back out and uh, goes hunting again. <laughs> so uh, what happens to these three fellas? Well, what happened to Arg? Arg, as you'll remember, went straight back out after his uh, meal of antelope, and he went uh, hunting again. And uh, now, the savanna is full of antelope, but it's also full of danger. It's full of uh, saber-toothed tigers, and it's full of uh, 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 mud pits, and quicksand, and, uh, and all sorts of terrible things. And uh, in Ark's personality type, he wanted to keep, keep going out there. He wanted to keep hunting, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately, he got eaten. Now, the, thing that, uh, the, the poor thing about Arg is, is because he's exposing himself to so much danger constantly, it's inevitable uh, that he does not procreate. He's, uh, he's dead. Uh, Bloog, on the other hand, uh, is uh, resting. I didn't realize this when I downloaded this photo from the internet first, but if you look, there's kind of a silhouette of a cave woman. Can you see it? It's just, it's just kind of like behind him. I think it's because his pecker's bigger, but I'm not too sure. Uh, but anyway, he's resting for uh, several days before he heads back out uh, to the savanna. But in that period of time of his lethargy, he, uh, his muscles atrophy, and uh, he is not, um, well, except for certain periods of the day, uh, and uh, he uh, is not honing his hunting skills. And uh, eventually, uh, he and his family starve uh, because he's not, uh, he's not uh, keeping up uh, with the other uh, cavemen. So Charles, on the other hand, um, is doing something very interesting. Uh, Charles is simulating the hunt in the safety of the camp. And what he's doing is he is, on average, he's increasing his rate of survival by not exposing himself to the dangers of the, uh, of the savanna. Uh, but he is um, uh, practicing. He is simulating the hunt. He's practicing. He's telling stories about the hunt so that when he goes out again with his tribal members, they know what to do because he's told them about how to do it and so on and so forth. And Charles winds up surviving. Now, why is this uh, important to us when we talk about this? Who cares? Well, it's because we descended from Charles. Uh, you and I, everyone in this room, everyone in the world, Okay, came from Charles. They didn't come from Arg. He got eaten. They didn't come from Blue. Blue starved. All of his kids starved. Charles survived. That means that we inherited Charles' predispositions. What Charles did in the camp is what we do now, one way or another. And so these predispositions is uh, Charles hunted and procreated. That's, uh, that's kind of something that he did. Uh, he told stories about hunting and procreation. Uh, that's because uh, it's what we all do. And uh, he simulated haunting. <laughs> the simulation of procreation is something that is beyond the scope of this presentation. So we're going to move on. <laughs> and so I'm going to add in, I'm going to uh, flip in a little bit of, of, uh, of uh, popular science here and say that there's a, a dopamine connection here. We know that when we physically work out, when we solve a very intricate puzzle, uh, when we get an unexpected promotion, uh, when uh, we tell a good story and people appreciate it, 
um, dopamine is released into areas of our brain, and we have a feeling of euphoria. Uh, this sets up a, um, uh, a self-perpetuating cycle. And that cycle is that uh, we uh, conduct uh, something we're predisposed to do. Uh, it, we get an enjoyment uh, in our brain through a, a dopamine release. Uh, that leads to conducting the predisposed activity again. It's a chicken or the egg argument. Who knows? Uh, were we naturally selected to, for, for this to occur? I can't tell you. Uh, it evolved. Uh, this leads to enjoyment through dopamine and etc. So what, uh, what I'm going to say, that what this theory proposes is that this cycle of uh, a predisposed activity and then an enjoyment uh, release afterwards is maybe, maybe what fun is. And maybe fun isn't this. It doesn't matter, but as a theory, it, it helps us a lot, particularly in, uh, in game design. So we should be able to predict fun activities um, by examining what we're predisposed to do. And so uh, what did Charles do? Uh, he hunted. This creates a physical fun cycle. Uh, he told stories about his hunting and so on and so forth, and this creates a social fun cycle. Uh, and he simulated uh, what he did, uh, which creates a mental fun cycle, because you have to think about it and, uh, and replicate uh, the real world. And so um, in games, uh, we have uh, some interesting physical fun in games. Uh, now, obviously, uh, really cool games would be uh, games where we would go out and kill other people, but that's not uh, the case in our society today. That's been bred out of us. So what we do instead is we simulate it. Uh, we have simulated <laughs> movement and maneuver, and we have simulated exploration, and uh, controller manipulation, which is the last vestige of the actual physical activity uh, that we have uh, in, this, uh, in this medium. And so we have an archetypical physical fun game uh, like Doom, uh, for instance. And um, we have social fun in games. Um, and this is uh, storing, something that Bioware is, is very well known for, uh, storing communication, uh, teamwork, uh, competition and dominance assertion, uh, trading and sharing. These are all uh, social activities uh, that generate fun cycles. And so we have an archetypical social fun game. Uh, does anybody know which one this is? It's not Barbie Pillow Fight. <laughs> does anybody know what it is? Yeah, thank you. It's The Sims, that's right. Uh, very popular. I think last year, I think EA had five Sims titles in the top ten PC games uh, list. Uh, mental fun in games. Uh, this is uh, tactical or strategic planning, pattern recognition, goal choice and achievement, and meaningful choice making. And uh, so we have an archetypical mental fun game. In fact, the widest distributed, highest selling electronic game of all time, Tetris which is all about pattern recognition and tactical planning and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so uh, the theory goes that uh, what, you, what you will do to make a, a very particularly successful game is if you don't concentrate on one fun cycle, you blend them together. And so our archetypical blended fun game, does anyone play this one? Does anyone know what it is? Yeah, back there. You are correct, sir. It is World of Warcraft. With four million, four and a half million online users today, if you were to go on and check it out. Uh, and so uh, blended fun games, uh, and actually role-playing games fall into this category very, very easily. There's a lot of physical uh, fun in simulated combat and movement, a lot of social fun in team building, player versus player in communication, a lot of mental fun in uh, the choices that are made during 
uh, character development, tactical planning, achieving goals, and so on and so forth. And so when we get back to our question of can community-generated game content replace the need for professional content, uh, my answer in the end of this presentation, which will lead me off to the bathroom, is uh, only if the nature of fun activities become understood by the community at large and the principles are applied with professional discipline. So you are now all equipped now to go out and uh, generate fun game content. So more power to you. But yeah. Kevin, Kevin isn't physical fun. <laughs> there it is. This is actually um, a photograph um, from the uh, riots in Paris earlier in the year. And uh, these people aren't playing a game. Kevin, there's a long there's a long track record though, or history of of uh, social games where users generated a tremendous amount of it. Again, I'm thinking particularly of the muds and mushes, uh, you know, in there in the late '90s, late '80s, and, and mid '90s. Uh, you know, kind of the era pre Ultima Online and, and pre you know multiplayer online mm -hmm. games where they became graphical, and then you know the ability to generate those graphics is is not accessible to most people, and so as a result, the ability for the average guy to contribute to that went away. But, but previous to this, this wonderful, rich era of, uh, of text-based muds and mushes that, that um, anybody could contribute to. All you needed was imagination and the ability to type. Uh, so don't you, don't you perceive that? And in Bioware, are you trying to embrace any aspects of that in, in uh, developing yeah, actually, the games? Yeah, actually, sorry, with, with uh, and I think I said Rick before, but I meant Rob. That's OK. Here, <laughs> I'll turn this. <laughs> Yeah, uh, what, what, the, what the MUDs did uh, was uh, replicate for the first time in electronic form which, what was happening in the 70s and 80s uh, with the, uh, the desktop, or sorry, the tabletop, I should say yeah. tabletop role-playing game environment, which is uh, people weren't smacking the heck out of each other when they were playing those games, but they were talking about it and they were rolling dice and they were uh, pretending uh, to do what they were doing. And moving into those uh, multi-user dungeons, um, it was really uh, feeding in, um, I suspect, uh, into that social fun element, getting together, talking about what you were doing, sharing stories. And uh, really, that was a big theme of this morning's talk, when uh, a lot of the guys were talking about television and so on and so forth, particularly the fella, I believe his name was Mark, who was uh, talking about his uh, Smallville stuff. He kept going back to story, story, story. How do we get our story across? How do we have users participating in the story? And, and so on and so forth. And this, uh, this really feeds in strongly to that social aspect uh, that, uh, that I was talking about there. And, uh, and as uh, graphics got applied uh, to the mods and the 2D graphics, uh, the sprites got turned into 3D models and the worlds became more and more involved and uh, so on and so forth, uh, it was easier and easier to strip story out of the game because the user uh, could become, uh, e even though you're still playing game, uh, a more uh, a passive viewer of the beauty that was happening in the game. He was still manipulating what his character was doing and so on and so forth. But you had a, a good generational cycle of a lot of games that didn't have a lot of strong story elements. But the shift there, then story became architecture, right? And so the shift in user-generated genera games was level design. Yes, and exactly. And the level mods. So you, and you embedded tons. story into yeah. the architecture of the levels, uh, you yep. know, the physical space that you were running around in and playing in. So there was a narrative of sorts. It was just the narrative took place in, in the form of architecture. I mean, I'd also say that you know, our experience in building Game Never Ending was that in some ways the story was 
and I was acted out in the social interactions between the people in the game. So there would be a story of you know a gang of people, you know, went and bought two thousand harpsichords in a music store, and then like kind of moved them to some you know made some like enormous art installation in some other hub in the game. You know what I'm saying? Like that would be the story. Like yep. that is the narrative. The experience. <laughs> Um, of playing the game becomes the narrative. That, that's the story element. Yeah, and we find, uh, we find it's the case, uh, because um, Bioware games in particular are very story-focused, that there's two levels of story always going on. There's the designer story, which is the presentation. I don't know if uh, anyone's been exposed to Knights of the Old Republic, a Star Wars game from 2003. Anybody? Kind of a couple people. Mm -hmm. It was 2003 Game of the Year. We were very proud of it and uh, did very well. And that was kind of, uh, it came out at a time when the Star Wars community was thirsting for a true Star Wars story because Lucas had been letting them down so badly uh, over and over again with crappy movies that he was putting out. So, <laughs> uh, uh, we, so we had a strong designer story there uh, and, uh, and people appreciated it. It was one of the, the reasons why Knights of the Old Republic did so well. But at the same time, we've always got to recognize that while there is a designer story going on, the more important story and the consistent story that's always going on during play is the player story. Because the player, when he talks about his game experience, uh, in his online world or in his, on his console or whatever he's doing, um, when he talks about what he has done in the game, when he tell, relates his story, it's never the designer story. He doesn't say, oh, I was Darth Revan and I, you know, I kicked Malik's butt and, uh, you know, Bastila turned on me and I flushed her down the toilet. He, they, they don't talk about the, the designer story about it. They talk about, well, here's how I defeated Darth Malik, for instance, and they'll go through the mechanics of what they did and relate that as a user story or as a player story about uh, kind of what their experience of the game was. Do, do you think that means that, you know, you could in some ways dispense with the designer stories? Because, and I mean, it, I've been playing... In fact, in fact, many games have. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've been playing World of Warcraft for quite some time now, and I actually... I know that there's some story. Like whenever I receive one of those scrolls, Sport I versus kind of like, alliance. I page through, like, and I just I'm just not interested. Yeah. And I just like I don't know the story. Like there's some Azeroth. Uh, I don't know. Like, and I and I have I Best found that it, it hasn't in fact you know inhibited my enjoyment of the game and, at and all. It, and it shouldn't. Yeah. And it shouldn't. Yeah. It's there for people who want it because some people do want those stories. Yeah. Uh, some some players are very very story driven and. And they want to they want to consume that story, uh, but for the most part, players want to uh, want to experience their own thing. They want to build their own world. They want to uh, have their own thing. I think there's a question at the front. Yeah. Uh, hi, panel. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm a Babson student, just undergraduate. Uh, just I'm just at college. I'm not affiliated with anybody. I'm very interested in the the game world economics. So this question is very <coughs> cited towards Kevin and Rob. So I apologize to the two in the middle, but. Um, as you were saying, uh, I think Kevin brought it up, how games developed, they were, you know, in the beginning they were one track, they were um, created fully by the developers, and they went to RPGs, which I see almost as an additive property. There was many, you could do three or four different classes, let's say, and then it became an expanding um, funnel almost, where now you multiply. You have classes <coughs> that can do different quests, have different endings, and then we uh, progressed into the massive multiplayer online RPGs, and finally to the user-generated, which kind of started with the massive multiplayer online. So I see game developers as kind of stepping back. Um, they used to do everything in the, in the front, now they're, walk, they're walking backwards. And um, so um, part of this question is, do 
do you feel that there's always going to be a place for developers, but they're going to be stepping farther back where almost maybe the next step is that the users create the protocol um, where the, the, guy, the framework that's built isn't um, necessarily built originally by the developers. But that leads me into um, what I'm most concerned about is the economics within games. I find it hard for a video game to have um, an economic system that either simulates the real world or has its own consistency. There's a lot of stuff even back since um, the f one of the first games, Ultima Online, came out. They had to do things like gold dumps just to get currency out of the out of the out of the um, the game. And what Rob said in the beginning was that you know inevitably, if we reduce costs in the video game world, we're reducing entertainment overall. Overall, if an hour of playing a video game costs me X amount of dollars, then a movie for the same enjoyment has to be somewhat similar. So. Um, and people don't act like they do in the real world. You have to give them incentives to, to build stuff. So and like you said with the statistics, 1% one, 1 of the people may produce, 20% only indulge in it. Um, so we're, there's always an aspect that's going to connect to real world economics, you know, real cash like um, second world, actually you can trade out money, pay and, get, and you can buy content in the world. Do you find that that's going to be a problem or has there been anything you do um, as a game developer or as any type of content where you things you might have not done in the real world to make sure people are having fun, but maybe you still operate as, as an economy in itself. So like I said, there's just to recap, two questions, which is... I'm trying to write them down. As yeah. um, <laughs> do you find you know, yourself as a game a developer going to you know, always be ex in existence building something, and then second, the economics behind it? You said Rob, Rob do you know? <laughs> So, oh, oh, great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no, okay, let, let, me, let me jump in and, and just do a quick, quick pass at that. Uh, let me say that if only 1% uh, only of, a, of a, a, a typical population is going to go in and start generating content, that uh, means that you still have to service 99% of that group uh, that purchased the game with a complete fully self-contained um, uh, product that doesn't require their added participation. So if your question is, is will there always be the necessity for having professional game developers to develop that packaged experience? Until that 1% grows into 90%, um, yes. Uh, or at least providing a framework <laughs> for, a, for a game to exist within. And then your second question regarding economics, particularly uh, either gray market or, uh, I suppose, the use of real-world currency in order to generate uh, virtual-world currency and the domination of economics with inside, ga uh, inside games. Uh, I think it is an ongoing problem that the industry, as young as it is, is still trying to figure out how to deal with. Uh, and Every MMO that comes out, and we've got an MMO office opened up in Austin now uh, last year, and, uh, and they're, they're working away on that, and they struggle with the exact same questions that plague every other developer. How do we develop safe systems and economic systems and security and so on and so forth to provide a consistent experience for that uh, consumer? Uh, and uh, inevitably, no matter how many developer hours you throw at the problem, uh, the community at large, which may be as big as several million people, will still be able in brain power to overpower what the developers have been putting together up to this point in time. Um, so it's like uh, the finger in the dike. And that, then there you got another hole 
And then, you know, it's like that uh, Ice Age trailer with the little squirrel that's always running after the acorn. There's always a new problem that we're trying to stick our fingers into. Uh, and until the industry gets more mature and figures out a good solution to it, then it's, yeah, it's going to be problematic for a while, I suppose. That's a really good point. Uh, that's relevant to just about everything we're talking about, which is no matter how clever you are as a designer, developer, producer of some sort of content, you can't be more clever than the internet. Because there's 300 million people using the internet today, and the number keeps going up. And those are minds that are awake when you're asleep, in many cases are more motivated to sell something than, than you may have been or your design team may have been. Uh, and so the architectures that invite participation are probably likely over the long haul to be those that are successful, uh, more successful than architectures that don't. Uh, to your question, the, the, it's a complex question. And the, the first part, I respond to it by saying, Discussions about participatory media almost always end up, at least when I'm there, end up talking about games. And I've been involved in the games industry for about 15 years. But I've also been involved in, in television and, and film and so forth. Uh, games are a very strange phenomenon. For interactive media, they are, they're kind of like the Gesamtkunstwerk that opera was 100 years ago in the sense that if you're a game designer, you're a little bit of a storyteller, you're a little bit of a, a, a theater designer. Uh, you're also you're, you're kind of a toy maker. And of course, you've got to be conversant with uh, computer science as well. So it's a skill that requires uh, many different, many different, you know, kind of the integration of many different skills. It's a very complex thing to do. It's a very complex uh, process to manage. Um, different skills come to the fore for different types of game experiences. So it really is dependent upon the experience that someone wants to create, uh, which skills are going to come to the fore. So your question was, gee, is the game designer going to recede somehow into the background? Well, sure, if that's the kind of game experience he's trying to create. That's not a new thing. That's always been the case. And bear in mind, the history of games goes way back past the games you cited. You know, it goes back for thousands of years. And so the, you know, the, uh, the longer history of games, the pre-computer game era, you know, the, uh, longer history of games has always been social and multiplayer. Uh, th this era of you know, single-player games in front of a video screen is historically kind of a blip, a very short blip. So there's always been a, a multiplayer environment for most games. And that's always been a part of the game designer's job is to anticipate that and leave room for more than one point of view, more than one outcome within the same structure. It's a very unusual artistic craft as a result because most artistic forms end with a single result, uh, not, not multiple at the same time. Uh, and so I guess I would say, to summarize that, the answer to the question is um, whether one set of design skills or another is going to come to the fore, it really depends. In terms of multiplayer games, I do see them opening up to more and more user-generated content. The successful trend, whether it's you know, uh, Second Life or some of the more uh, you know, traditional uh, role-play type game situations we've referred to, like, like Worlds of Warcraft, uh, they certainly invite participation on many levels, and they reward participation on many levels. One of the ways you can participate is to create content, create digital objects which can be shared and traded. This does create a kind of virtual economy. Um, this can be gamed. Any kind of economy can be gamed. Any virtual economy can be gamed. And so as a result, this is a persistent problem. It's not new. Uh, it's not something new with Worlds of Warcraft. This has been going on since Meridian, 30, Meridian 59, which is the first kind of uh, multiplayer online game that came with graphics that shipped with uh, you know, the CD-ROM and so forth. It preceded EverQuest and it preceded Ultima. I talked to Mike Sellers, who designed that game, and they blew it, and he confessed it. They blew it with the economy. They just had no idea how to structure an economy, and so they create, tried to create a really simplistic economy 
And what happened, you know, you had to, like, to make a sword, you had to go to the woods and you had to like, cut down trees and then you'd you know, go dig up ore and you'd burn the trees to heat the ore. And it, they strip mined the woods and there was no more coal, and there was no more <laughs> woods left. And, like, they just, the game economy fell apart in, in a matter of weeks. And they just couldn't anticipate the, the level of consumption. Today, you have, uh, you, there's actually companies, there are guys who have opened up little maquiadoras in, in Southern California, just over the border in Tijuana where they hire people to play, uh, play games like World of Warcraft and so on. They actually you know, will go out and, and uh, call uh, the ores and so forth so that they can create digital objects, which the owners of these companies can then go auction on eBay. Hard to believe it's true that you know, people are running real world businesses out of virtual economies, but they are. Hard to imagine that there's a place so close to ours where the, the cost of labor is so low that actually you can actually make a margin on that, you know, that labor, the virtual labor, I guess, of guys clicking in a, in a virtual world and uh, generating virtual objects can actually then generate enough profit to pay that person and make it profitable for the, the, the owner of the business. It was like three forty nine an hour. I, I think in, it was what Julian DeBell said in um, Play Money was how mm -hmm. much was was approximately how much you can earn. and that's like significantly more than you can earn as a as, as a, a laborer as a laborer and, and you're yeah. sitting there playing playing a video game and getting yeah. paid for it. In China, this is also a huge phenomenon, uh, and so that that's that's a fact. Now, this is a huge issue for the companies that publish because they assert that they own the copyright to all those objects, there, and then therefore you can't some outsider can't sell them, and this is a source of tremendous friction. Uh, and there's, there's one company in particular that is aggregating the auction sites where these objects are sold off. And this company is considered a remora by, uh, by, by um, the guys that run uh, Worlds of Warcraft and EverQuest and so forth. Uh, and there's a great deal of legal interaction between those, those companies. Uh, it's funny. The, one of the things that's fun is when you open up your business to your audience, emergent behaviors occur. And you can't really predict what's going to happen. You can do your best to think through the scenarios. But every person who's developed some form of participatory media is going to tell you stories of emergent behavior that they just didn't expect. Ten years ago, I was working with the guys at Empath, and they developed multiplayer games for me when I was at Sony. And um, they had developed a way for people to talk to each other. And this is an early form of like kind of you know voice chat in a game world. And what people were doing with that is that they would they would uh, one guy would would sort of figure a way to plug a stereo into that, and they'd create a disco inside of the game. And it was not at all something that they intended. It wasn't appropriate to the game world or anything. So it had nothing to do with like, the story of the game. But it was kind of a fun thing to do. That's a classic example of emergent behavior. And now we see that all the time. What I think is cool about uh, having open APIs in Web 2.0 sites is that now you, you, you embrace the notion that that's going to occur, that people are going to want to go out and create a module or an extension or a widget that plugs into your, into your site and does something different, something that you couldn't anticipate. Something that does, though, drive usage, does extend the habit of it, maybe, maybe expose that site to people in a way that you never would have thought of. So it's a form of marketing. Um, and you're enlisting your best audience, and you're engaging them and using more and more of their time to propagate your idea or propagate your meme. And this raises the question of labor. I mean, if user-generated content drives economic value for yeah. the, 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 either the user itself or, or the, the corporation, is there some responsibility to reward users for their labor? This comes up all the time, and I think it's a, it's, it's a very interesting question because if you look at, um, you know, look at YouTube versus Rever, both of them started around the same time. Rever was very much premised on, we will pay you for your content. Mm -hmm. And YouTube was very much premised on, we will not pay you for your content. <laughs> and. Um, you know, which one of those two really took off. And you look at that, and it's, it's very interesting because I think that there's a different, when you're 
you know, participating in these these kinds of software, it's it's a very different thing. You know, it's a very different impulse to say, "Oh, I made this cool video of myself lip syncing to a song," you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna you know kind of go be a you know a, you know whatever famous for 15 people or whatever, and I'm gonna put it up. There's a different when you're you know participating in these these kinds of software, it's. It's a very different thing, you know, it's a very different impulse to say, oh, I made this cool video of myself lip syncing to a song, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, kind of go be a, you know, a, you know, whatever, famous for 15 people or whatever, and I'm going to put it up on YouTube and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and you're doing it more because, like, it's fun, it's funny, it's, um, you know, it'll, it'll get you some measure of fame um, in it's slightly ridiculous versus, versus sitting down and thinking, all right, I'm going to make this into a business. It's like it's like right brain versus left brain. Your reasons for participation are extremely different. Mm. And you know, if you look at the content on Rever, you know, it's very commercial. It's very deliberately designed to be commercial. And it, it in some ways, I think the, the 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 kind of the magic of user generated content is its authenticity and its um, you know it's it's kind of it's human. You know, it's it's kind of quirky and idiosyncratic and weird and not very polished. And um, you know, it's real. And so. <laughs> You know, I, it's kind of interesting to, to to kind of like look at these two these two aspects of these things. That's, that's not to say that you know people don't constantly like, you know make money off of their Flickr photos all the time. Um, we're not you know kind of promoting that, but you know there's there's tons of people who have you know there's there's this one guy who was hired to do a whole um, you know Land Rover um, series of ad, ad advertisements based on his his Flickr photos and you know all of that all of that kind of that's a Flickr photo stuff. Yeah, yeah. There you go and. Um, you know, there's a, also a great number of people who are contributing photos to, you know, with Creative Commons licenses yep. that they, you know, they deem okay for commercial use as well. <laughs> so it really depends on what the motivations of the users are. And, you know, people who want to sell their photos can go to iStock Photo or, or another one of the, the kind of the photo um, um, selling services and, um, you know, contribute their photos there. And the other side of it is that I think when content has a commercial and it instantly loses interest, all the users. Uh, I think users are uh, attracted to some of this content on YouTube, as you're saying, because they're real. And they're not created for a specific commercial purpose. Uh, when the Volvo project uh, started to get uh, much more attention, uh, I started to get a lot of calls from corporations. Oh, you know, we can use this idea to make an electronic billboard and, you know, uh, do something for the game or whatever. And it was kind of, in, in the beginning, I thought, well, that's interesting. I can make some few bucks. I mean, I spent three thousand dollars to make these stickers, and you know, I could, I could make that happen with these people. And suddenly, it just kicked in that uh, you know the reason why people are really interested in the bubble project was because there was no commercial uh, interest attached to it. And that's when I uh, really consciously made the decision to not make it specifically commercial. Uh, there will be no uh, banner ads attached to it. And I think there is a. Uh, uh, I think that the rewards uh, comes later. I mean, I just saw the cover of Wired magazine. There's a, a lonely girl, 15, and uh, and she was complaining she didn't get any any paycheck, uh, you know, for the YouTube. But in, uh, you know, now there she's uh, on the cover of the Wired magazine. So it all, always comes back. Is there a question? Uh, hi, uh, this is uh, Fergie. Um, with. User, with user-generated, <laughs> hi, uh, Dave Skorzik, I'm a content uh, creator and uh, producer. Um, with a lot of user-generated content, and people are commenting about, you know, the world around them, much like, much like you do, 
um, it, it brings up a lot of issues of you know what's fair use and what's a derivative work. And I, I believe you have some books of some of uh, some of your works out there. Um, you know, you're you call what you do a dialogue. Some people might call you a vandal. Um, Many you know, people have, call have, it vandal. What was that? <laughs> Many people. Right. So, I mean, have you run into, I mean, have there been legal repercussions um, as a result of the work that you're doing? Um, and how can you publish these books of some of, uh, using some of these other images when a lot of these, uh, when, a, when a, a lot of those comments are derogatory toward the brands that are, you know, pictured in, in, the, uh, in the billboards? Well, I'm not responsible for those brands. The brands are responsible for themselves. I'm just creating a, a platform for people to uh, communicate to the brands or among themselves. Uh, so it's, it's not, I mean, the, the whole question of vandalism is part of it. And uh, I, you know, in the book and in the website and in the, in the, uh, the platform, uh, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the bubble stickers that you can download, it says clearly that, uh, you know, vandalism, we don't, uh, support vandalism and all the actions you're doing is on your own. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But the first, but the first three thousand may or may not have been placed by you or somebody that, that you know. And I and I got and I got two. I mean, I got a few tickets from uh, undercover police in New York City, and I've gotten calls from uh, Van Wagner uh, Media Company. You know, they saw an article I think in Newsweek or something, and one of the lawyers called me and they said, you know, you have to stop it right now. You're vandalizing our properties. And I said, well, I, I stopped, partially. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that to them, obviously. But uh, it's the, now the, the bubble project is not really uh, under my control. There are other people who are doing it. And uh, it's really the truth. And people are making their own bubbles and putting up their own stickers. And it really has gotten the life of its own. So uh, that is the beauty of when you're generating uh, participatory projects like that. It's just somehow the intention in the beginning just disappears and becomes in the domain of people who are doing it. Uh, so no, nobody's I, I, responsible. Yeah, nobody responsible. It just happens. <laughs> and how about those images that you now have on the website? Are those, you know, do you go through like a legal clearance process with those or? No, I think I, I spoke to my lawyer obviously and her response was, you know, it's, it's pretty much like a sampling. When you take yeah. James Brown's song and make it a public uh, enemy's song, it's, you know, there was a big debate about is, is this stealing, is it original piece of art, and uh, it's pretty much of that debate. You know, you're sort of changing the context of that ad by putting the sticker and taking an artistic photograph of that, photo, of that uh, environment. So I, uh, therefore, I'm legally protected because it is considered uh, uh, artistic creation. Great, thank you. Hi, um, my name is Rekia Murphy, and I'm a comparative media studies alum. The thing I wanted to talk about was, or ask about, were your thoughts on what community to pick when deciding where to stake out your territory. I'm thinking online specifically, but even with you know with video games that are offline or with any to. Um, I was hanging out with some Harvard Business School guys, and they told me the conventional wisdom for a really fast turnaround, high revenue um, idea would be one that's very incrementally innovative over existing ideas. So um, one of them described their idea to me once, and um, 
it really sounded like a lot of other websites out there. And clearly, they're not the only ones with that conventional wisdom because there are a lot of what mimicry sites cropping up. Meaning, so yeah, I, I, I almost went there, and then I realized I probably shouldn't because it was pretty funny. I was like, oh, that's just like X. They're like, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> but you take something and you add a twist. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because, you know, there was just a, an article in the New York Times about all of these online shopping list sites. And obviously, as soon as Friendster came out, you had a million others. There, there are copycats for every one of these. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that, you know, just from a user perspective. How do you sort through all of this? At what point, I'm hearing friends who spend too much time on these sites talk about saturation, like almost like they get to about four or five participatory sites and they max out. Um, so there's that. Um, the other part that I find kind of interesting, um, especially uh, Katerina might have a response to this, is the notion of once you stake out your territory, which takes a certain amount of investment, you know, I feel like for me to join a new participatory site takes me about two hours to really start upload, catching up with my backlog of content and you know, tagging it and getting set up, making friends, all of that. Well, if the place that I've chosen decides to change things around or gets bought, all of a sudden the architecture that was supposedly open could close. I mean, with all of these sites, we don't know where they're going. And you know, with Delicious and Flickr, obviously with Yahoo there, um, there's not only does Yahoo decide to pull a lever one way or another, or does it decide to shut everything down? It can. So, so how, what, how do you deal with that issue of trust? Check out the end user license agreement when you upload video to YouTube. Check it out. Would you like to share a little of that now? They own it. Lock, stock, and barrel. They can do whatever they want with it. Yeah. And Flickr, we don't own anything. You can take any of your stuff off. You know, that's part of the reason the APIs are there. And, you know, all your, you, your content is your own. And there are other photo sites out there, if you read the terms of use, and I won't call them out, but um, who do own your photos. Once you upload them, they own your photos. So that's one part of it. Although also the other part that I'd love to hear about is even on just plain old social networking sites like Friendster, um, you know, they, they just change the experience a little bit or MySpace changes the experience. Now, it's not that they own my profile or maybe they do. I haven't read the... the <laughs> <laughs> I think Friendster they do but, actually. But, but also do. it's just the fact that the feeling that, oh, here, I, it's almost like they shut down my neighborhood. You know, like I go yeah. and I build a community and then it goes away. So, it, so it's about ownership, but it's also simply about the trust that the space that you, yeah. you are in is considered That's a huge part of this. I, and I, I don't think enduring. that any company out there who is, um, you know, kind of stewarding these sites. I actually worked on Netscape online communities back in the day, mm. long ago. And um, after they were acquired, it was, a, it, was, it was a horrific thing. And this was actually all over the web. Um, when, they, when they were acquired by AOL, they, sh they shut down the community. They, like, literally, like, one day you came there and they pulled the plug. It was gone. And there were people who had, um, and, and I was outraged. I was actually a moderator on, on um, you know, a fair number of, of groups there. And it was just bloodshed. I mean, it was miserable. All of these people who had gotten to know each other, they were developing relationships. Hey, they were probably getting married. You know, these were people who knew each other from online, and they, this, was their, this was where they hung out. And then suddenly they were, you know, they had nowhere to go. And um, it was just this kind of crazy period of people trying to kind of track each other down and like, I think his real name was Steve. You know, like it was just, it was really, it was, it was a Like a natural disaster. <laughs> it was like a natural yeah. disaster. I mean, yeah. it really was. And, um, you know, and I think that a lot of things have changed over the years. I think that, um, 
you know, um, companies have learned that this is not okay, that this is not something that you can just do, that you, you can't just, um, you know, I, th I think that was, you know, very one of the things when we were acquired by Yahoo that we were insistent upon. You know, you can't just change stuff arbitrarily, um, you know, on a community like this. I mean, it's kind of like you're dating somebody and they have a Good face transplant. You're like, wait, this isn't the person that I'm dating. You know, like, it's just, yeah. you can't do that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that I think that you know, uh, you know, a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes have been made in the past. You know, the, the Netscape example being kind of like a classic, a classic error, um, you know, on that front. Um, but to to get back to your, actually your first question, which is that is is there kind of a um, participatory media um, kind of too many sites out there? And I would say yes. I mean, I would say that you know, <clears throat> people have to really decide which site they want to commit their time and energy to. Um, you know, you can't participate in all of the, all of the sites. I, I'm an early adopter. I try everything. I try all kinds of different sites, but I, I find that I'll go and I'll kind of add, you know, one day's worth of content, and then I'll, I'll kind of reach, you know, a, a certain level. I mean, and, and so here, the, the, the real question to you know the entrepreneurs out there is, what comes after this? You know, what is the next thing? You know, after the participatory media, um, you know, there's a. I was I was talking to um, a woman named Linda Stone this weekend, and she's 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 spoken a great deal about um, what's her phrase? Somebody tell me continuous partial attention. And she thinks that what people are evolving towards. She said that, that, that there's a period um, that that we have just left, which was about connecting, which was about um, you know people finding more people to to meet and connect with, and finding kind of you know people that they don't know on the internet and all that all that kind of thing, and that the phase that we're moving into now is much more about constraining the number of people that we know because we now know that there's billions of people out there, there's 6.5 billion other people out there who we could potentially meet and you know be contacts with and be friends on Friendster with, and um, that that has sort of in, in some ways become meaningless, and so the the tendency now is towards constricting your social network and really kind of concentrating on those 12 people that, you know, are your family unit. You know, they have that, you know, the, the Dunbar number where they, you know, they say that, you know, you can know between 150 to 200 people and that kind of maxes out your mental, like, capacity for knowing people. That was, you know, traditionally the size of a tribe in, you know, pre-industrial eras. And, you know, that that is, the, that is the maximum number of people that you can, like, you know, unless you're, you know, Bill Clinton or somebody like that, those are, that's the number of people that you can, you know, know. And, you know, you know, you know, probably what's happening right now is less of this sort of like, you know, connecting, 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 and more of this sort of like, I'm going to keep to these services. I'm going to keep to these 15 people. I'm going to, you know, stop answering emails, you know, from people that I've never met. You know, that, that, like that kind of thing. And so, you know, in, in a world like that, what is the application? Like, what is the, what is the killer app for that world? I mean, just for the record, follow up. Um, there is obviously the social networking limitations, but of course, there's the attention infinite limitation, which is that I want as many people to see my content as possible. I don't. I may only need 12 friends. So when talking about what kind of site you decide to go to, you know, how do you choose that site? How do you get a sense of how many users are on it? Because I want my stuff broadcast out to as the most people possible. So, but it, that makes sense. Yeah. What you're saying. Is it? Question on the back. What? Hi. Is it me? Yeah. Hi there. I'm Valentina. I'm from Future Foundation. Um, just a question for the whole panel. Um, when thinking about user-generated content, generally we're still talking about 
a fairly kind of cutting edge side of the population. Um, consumers that are online, that are generally quite young and they're kind of on top of what's going on on the technology side. And it's not just, um, like my worry is that, it's not just thinking about like, can it really become a mass phenomenon, this? Can it really appeal to all generation? And it's not just thinking of the, the gray market, but just about all those people that simply just don't have the time and energy to just go out there and find out which are the cool websites and where within those websites where the interesting content will be. Uh, all those people that really haven't got the time to sort of plow through the, the sheer amount of content that's out there. And um, if, yes, if there is a, a future for this to become a really sort of truly mass phenomenon, is there a role for choice, choice editors within that to just help people kind of understand where to go or the websites to use. Have you thought about that at all? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking in terms of UK population, because that's, I think the US is slightly ahead, but we're talking 50% of population online, and within that maybe 15% of those using uh, websites that are, you know, like YouTube or... Facebook or all of these things, and can it really become a math phenomenon? Is you think? Uh, you have a you have a lovely voice, and you've stumped us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought up this pyramid here on the screen. Um, this is something that's been drawn by Bradley Horowitz at Yahoo, and and this is a, a kind of a typical user-generated content pyramid. You have Frequently, one, and that's this is actually, uh, you know, probably more like one to twenty percent, as we know from like Pareto. Generally, twenty percent of the people are responsible for eighty percent of the content or whatever. Um, but you have a small percentage of people that are the creators that are actually kind of like going out, making things, um, you know, filming videos, taking photographs, writing blog posts, whatever the activity may be. You have, um, you know, 10 to 20 percent or maybe 50 percent or some percentage of people that are synthesizing and that means they're commenting on, they're thumbs upping something, they're um, interacting in some way with, with the material. And then the rest of everybody is just kind of sitting there and they're like, you know, just give it to me easy. I don't have time to, I'm like, whatever, I'm, you know, I'm not going to participate and those people are the, are the consumers. And this is a very typical pattern um, in all of these kinds of um, scenarios of, of user-generated content, you do see you see this pattern kind of again and again. It's different proportions. Um, you know, I think in a perfect world, you know, we'd have 100%. You'd have 100%, 100%. You know, everybody would be contributing just as much as they're consuming. Um, but you know, you know, ever since the internet has existed, the lurker has existed, and um, you know, the lurker is you know the person who um, you know kind of sits quietly and you know lets other people discuss or, you know, be on the webcam or whatever the, whatever the activity is, um, you know, and, you know, are consuming. They're just, they're, they're participating. They're still kind of in, yeah. in, in it, you know, they're still, um, you know, uh, online or, or, you know, watching the videos or whatever, but they're not, they're not doing anything. So. Do, do you think it will become a mass phenomenon, or you still well, that thing uh, that that pyramid? Will what isn't? What isn't? What do you think is not a mass phenomenon yet that will be might be in the future? <laughs> I mean, just just so you understand, there are forty five million blogs, there are over hundred million profiles on social yeah. networking sites. Absolutely. By any metric, those that is indeed a mass phenomenon. It might not be a very apparent one, and it might be one that skews towards certain demographics and different age groups. But it, by, 
by yeah, but any, you, any measure, like, it's, like, it's you a know, mass phenomenon. MySpace, you know, you, in order to participate in MySpace, you have to have a profile. Yeah. 80 million you profiles. You can't not have one. And you know, in, in some ways, it's that you know, in some ways, that's kind of more, much more of a communication platform than a participative platform. Absolutely. If you know what I'm saying, like it's much more about, you know, connecting with and kind of chatting with. And um, I'm not suggesting that is not worldwide. I'm just saying that <laughs> perhaps it, it, when you think of the U.S. population, it's still you know a, a fairly limited segment that uses that. It might be 20 percent, but it, you know, what are all the other people's doing? And when we're thinking about advertisers starting to exploit this and, and wanting to reach a mass audience, um, this is sort of some of the, my thinking behind this. Well, savvy marketers are exploiting MySpace yeah. like crazy now that Fox yeah. is you know, working hard to commercialize example, what they, they bought. They were thinking of launching a, uh, a MySpace for like the gray market in the UK, but that thing didn't really take off because there were too many worries and for the what market? Um, a MySpace version for sort of this, mm, not the gray market, but the baby boomer sort of segment. Yeah, there, there are actually image. a couple. Eons uh, yeah. recently raised a bunch of money, and yeah. um, uh, there's another that's for 50 plus. There, 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 right now, there's a, there's a social networking site for just about every segment of the population yeah. you can possibly yeah. imagine. Yeah. There are over 300 social networking sites currently active, and that, my, my figures are probably off. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Ron Miners. I'm uh, currently working with Multiverse, which is an MMO middleware platform. And I started working in community back at Empath and remember uh, the dynamics that you were speaking of quite happily. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of fun stuff that people were just discovering. Anyway, uh, what I wanted to say though was a sort of a general comment on, on some of the topics that you've uh, touched on and to get your reaction to them, which is that I think there's a way in which the way uh, users relate to some of the social networking or interactive uh, content sites um, establishes a trust relationship with the provider and that part of what's going to be driving successful uh, enterprises moving forward is the ability to sort of, uh, uh, for, the, for the users, but as you say, to, 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 to know that their provider will cop to the mistakes they make or that there's, a, that there's a way that they can invest themselves and their time and their energy meaningfully in, in the site. And, uh, just looking for general comments or what you think of that. I applauded earlier when, when Katarina mentioned that during the, the Yahoo acquisition, the founders of Flickr fought fiercely to protect the integrity of the information and moreover the, the integrity of the relationship with their customers. I think it's worth applauding that because too often you sell out and you sell it entirely, including you sell out your integrity and that's a, that's a great temptation. It takes a great deal of stamina and guts to resist that temptation. It's very important, I think, if you're asking people to invest time and energy and to a certain extent invest their identity in your content property, then you're, you're, you're being entrusted. You're being entrusted with something that's very precious. It may not be tangible, it may not be easily monetizable, you may not be able to estimate the monetary worth of it, but the fact is your identity is priceless. And if you pour a little bit of your identity in, it might be a picture you took of your grandmother and you upload that to a site, and then that site's free to do whatever they wish with it and exploit it commercially, you might tolerate that if you're getting some benefit from it, but you're not going to tolerate it if they're going to exploit you and use it in ways that you would never want them to, and you have no recourse there. You can't take it down and so forth. Uh, if they're going to assert some sort of copyright over it and then have a way to, a way to use it in some other you know, hitherto unpredicted way uh, in the future, well, that certainly doesn't seem fair. That wouldn't pass a common fairness standard that just about anybody would understand. 
That's why it's worth paying attention to these end user license agreements because they vary widely from site to site. And it's very important as you proceed out in the web, as you start to pour parts of your identity into these sites, it's important to be aware of where your content is going, where your personal identity information is going. And I, I, you know, there's a very real threat here, which is that for identity thieves, it's awfully easy as we leave these, you know, these trails of our identity across the web, it's very easy to construct a pretty good understanding of who someone is. And I think many of the tens of millions of participants in sites like Facebook and MySpace are blissfully unaware that they're creating a, a great trail for some I think that future. AOL search uh, episode uh, in several months ago was a big right. wake-up call, actually. If people weren't familiar with that, That's the right. AOL search uh, released their user data um, to the web, and they had you know, kind of erased the IP addresses um, of the uh, <laughs> searchers. But you, know, you can learn a lot about people, as it turns out, from what they're searching for. And, um, you know, in less than, you know, whatever, 24 hours, the New York Times was able to track down this, like, you know, woman in her 60s in Georgia who, um, just based on her search, on, on, the, on the searches that she had done. And I, and I think that, you know, it was a, it was a horrific thing. Um, but if it served as a um, kind of a wake-up call to, you know, what kind of information is out there, of, you know, about, about you and, you know, you know, you know, what, you know what the potential outcome uh, is when the, when that kind of stuff is released. It's uh, that was you know a blessing in disguise. Uh, Hi, my name is Suri. I work on the on the advertiser side of things, and so my question um, goes to monetization. And uh, Katrina, you you already kind of touched on this, and so I want to go a little deeper and get all of your thoughts. Will when there's a model to really effectively monetize a lot of user generated content, like I see on Flickr, there's not a lot of advertisements, if any on there today, um, yeah. is, that gonna, is that gonna hurt, help, or leave it unchanged? I mean, you would think that it, it could help in that it would maybe bring out some people who don't have the time today, but if they were getting <laughs> rewarded for their, for their efforts, maybe then they would, they would produce it, but maybe <clears throat> then it drives out the people who are just really passionate about it, and they, you know, the people who create a lot of this stuff today. So where does that, where does that leave user-generated content when advertisers and, and Flickr or Google well, it, it starts thing to about, make money? Uh, thing about Here's an interesting thing about Flickr is that people are not actually paying, um, you know, for any kind of like distribution or anything like that. They're paying for storage. I mean, it's kind of a fairly straightforward uh, relationship that we have with the users. Um, the users get unlimited storage and unlimited uploads, and you know, um, you, you know, that's really the business um, of Flickr. And um, you know, the people that the people that subscribe, that's what they get. Now, there are advertisements, but there's the only advertisements on. Um, like you're not going to see an advertisement on an individual photo, as we, you know, as is well established on on um, um, you know content matching on um, these kinds of things tends to be fairly poor. And like the last thing that you want is you know you put up a, a photo of you know your your relative's funeral and like there's you know casket ads you know next to you. I mean, like that, like everybody like that's just a horrendous outcome. Nobody wants that. And so um, you know, but it just it makes really good. It makes really good sense, you know. On a like, so here's an example. Like, um, you know, I, I put in a search for Tokyo, and then there's you know, six hundred and eighty-seven thousand photos, you know, with Tokyo. And here you have you know really beautiful pictures of Tokyo, and um, you know all that kind of thing. And of course, you know, discount Tokyo. This makes sense. Like, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is like you know, Google has been making money off of everybody else's content, you know, <laughs> since the beginning of, of Google because you know they're they're serving ads against the aggregate. 
And I think that you know where the value tends to be for companies, if, if you're going to kind of do advertising, it's in the aggregate. It can't be on the individual photo pages. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, and it's, it's not. It's, it's weird. It feels weird, and it's, it's, it's perpetually wrong. But you know, in this case, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, Alex Wong, I'm starting uh, MMOG for kids. Uh, two questions. One is, um, where are you? Right here. Oh. <laughs> uh, two questions. And the first question is, uh, you talked about uh, user or player ratings, uh, whether it's explicit or implicit. And uh, uh, for example, Amazon, it's pretty, pretty explicit with all the stars, one star to five stars, and so on and so forth. So there got to be some sort of um, uh, pros and cons for each approach. So I'd like to hear more comments uh, on that, number one question. Number two question is, for user-generated content, particularly for websites like Flickr, you pr you're providing a platform for people to load, uh, upload uh, photos and so on, but you don't have content, if you will, to start with. So how do you get that critical mass uh, at the very beginning? And are there any, you know, I won't say special, but uh, most effective ways for, for a consumer-facing type of website to get the critical mass? Should I take that? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so to get to critical mass, that's a, that's a good question. Um, we were extremely assiduous community builders um, from the outset, and we spent, when we, as I described, the, the first thing that we had was this sort of IM window where you could drag and drop photos and you know blah, blah. Every single person that came to the site we greeted every single person, every single um, person we introduced ourselves to. Um, it, was, it was mainly me and George Oates, who um, actually still works on Flickr. The, the, the two of us would greet everybody. We would introduce each other. We would engage in conversation. We would hang out and chat. And we would do this pretty much around the clock, because um, every single one of those users was the potential future mayor of Flickr. We didn't know who it was going to be. We didn't know, you know what was going to happen. But we greeted every single one. And we, could, we couldn't lose a single one. Every single person was our potential user. When we, we had 10 people that came to the site, every single one of them, we wanted them to come back. And it's a, it's a fairly well-established principle that if you come to um, any kind of social situation, I mean, forget online, but especially online. You, know, you go to a party and nobody greets you, and you, know, you don't know anybody, and you know, nobody offers you a drink or takes your coat. You will leave, and you will never come back. And so. Um, you know, it, it, this of course doesn't scale, right? Once you once you kind of have you know 100,000 users, you can't really do that anymore. But hopefully, what you've established at the beginning is a culture in which that is the practice. The practice is that everybody greets everybody. You know, everybody you know kind of says like, "Hey, I noticed that you're into extreme knitting." You know, like so and so over here is really into extreme knitting too. You guys should you know like you get together and uh, and and that becomes what the what the you know what the what the kind of mores, what the culture of the community is, and I think that when you're establishing any kind of social site, you have to establish what those rules are. You have to establish what kind of behavior is is common and encouraged and is okay, and what kind is not. And I think that you have to, um, you know, the, things are very different. Like if you have kind of like the um, prim ladies, you know, crochet society, and then you have the monster truck and beers like kind of gang, the, the culture in those groups is, is going to be very different. And you know, things that are it's okay to say in the monster truck group is not okay in the prim ladies 
crochet group. So you know you have to sort of establish what the what the you know parameters are, what the practices are, what the culture is, and you you are you know it's a kind of a, a great opportunity to play God and you know kind of you're creating a civilization. So um, you know it's have fun. Anyone else like to comment? It kind of meshes with a trend, the new trend in social networking, and you know the. The first wave of social networking was sites that helped you connect with communities of friends. And people tried to aggregate long lists of friends, thousands of friends. Uh, the second phase, more recently, is these communities of interests where you're now gathering around a shared hobby. Uh, the, the, it seems the next trend, or the emerging trend, or maybe it's already a well-established trend, is communities of practice. And there are quite a few companies now, including some of the things I'm working on, that are focused on existing communities that already share a certain practice in their life. And that may be you know, a, a religious practice, or it might be a social practice, or it might be some athletic skill or something that they're trying to work on. Um, but these may be geographically dispersed groups. And so the web really lends itself to linking these people together, uh, helping them share common goals, common visions, common uh, values, perhaps, and of course, common practices. Uh, and so that seems to be a trend that's occurring. But it lends itself very nicely to the dynamics that Katharina just described, because these people arrive already with kind of an established sense of how they're going to interact with each other. Sort of, it's you know, it's understood how you're meant to interact. What's very hard to do is to create a new practice. Uh, you know, to to bring a group of total strangers in on a website and say, all right, here's how things are done at this site, or you know, here's a new mode of behavior you've never had before. Everybody who's developed online games has had this problem where you develop a game and you have a certain behavior in mind. And then a minority of players decide they've developed a different practice or a different way of engaging. And it, it might end up being offensive to everybody else. It's a huge issue with player killers in games that didn't want to have that as an action that players did. A uh, minority of player killers could drive out all the good players. And then you, it killed the games because you ended up with a tiny number, unsustainably small number of players. And all they want to do is blast everybody else who came in. And anyone who didn't want that interaction went to some other game. There's a, there's a classic example of um, early online community building with um, legs, pantyhose, decided they wanted to have <laughs> an online community. Like, they kept on hearing about this online community stuff, and like, this is going to be really great for us. And so they put up a bulletin board. And of course, all of the male pantyhose wearing <laughs> Fetishists showed up, and, it became, and, like, and this was not the intention of the I've legs been found out. company. Um, and so, you know, you can never really anticipate how your online community will evolve. Gee, the community that exists in the online bubble project is it is it related to the to the real world to the offline? Yes, it is. Activity? And and uh, um, you know, you're talking about the critical mass, and you know. Uh, in the case of the bubble project and also in the case of other bloggers, I think things take time to, to, uh, to reach that point. And in case of the bubble project, it probably took about three years to really get into that uh, critical mass and people you know, getting into the news and people setting up their own website. There's an online bubble project happening in Argentina who have their own website of the bubble project. People in uh, Italy and Romania are setting up their own website. Uh, so it is. It takes time, and then to your point, uh, the whole point, of, uh, the importance aspect of the bubble project was actually going out on the streets and doing this stuff. And uh, so there is a uh, the virtual aspect and uh, the real aspect, and it's 
uh, the, the two coexist in a really nice way because the whole uh, purpose of the, the, the project started because of the intrusive advertising on the street and how people uh, worldwide connected to that uh, uh, idea that these ads are intrusive. So uh, these two elements uh, coexist and they cannot be separated. And I, I think for the most part, people enjoy uh, going out there and doing something slightly illegal and, and getting response to what people you know, have to say about that. Beth? Hi, um, I'm Beth Coleman. I'm a professor in comparative media studies. There was an early consensus with the panel that it didn't matter if user-generated content was bad. So I'm asking people to revisit that for a second. And I'm asking, is it, it doesn't matter if user-generated content is bad today, but two years from now, will it be a more pressing question? Kevin, if I understood your um, caveman parable correctly, it all comes together. I hope you did, because I'm not sure I well, have. Well, it, it all comes together when users start thinking like traditional creators, well, or something like that. They have to understand that kind of meta perspective of creating fun in a game as opposed to just cool, something sustainable, something world building, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering, why is there a consensus that it doesn't matter if user-generated content is bad. We've looked at the numbers in terms of how many people generate, but something about the quality within that 1% generating, is there then a 1% who are making things that are good? Yeah, so let me, let me talk about that for just a second, and thanks for bringing up the subject again, because it's, uh, it's very relevant. Um, when, uh, when I indicated that it didn't matter uh, if the content was good or bad, uh, the fact is, is that people are uh, there and they're participating in the community and they're helping to build the community. And from our perspective as a, as a business model, um, what, uh, what our company wants to do is they want to build an, uh, as big a community as possible. And one venue into that community is content generation. And uh, we're not going to uh, put a value judgment on the quality of that uh, of that participation or, or or what they make. The fact that they're there, they're at the site, they're uh, they're uploading their material, they're gaining comments on it, and so on and so forth. They feel like they're part of a community and part of a hobby. That's awesome. They go to the online store. They download a community expansion pack. They uh, do uh, do all sorts of things uh, uh, that goes simply beyond content generation, including commenting on other people's material. But the 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 beauty of the uh, the beauty of the situation is that not everyone's stuff is bad, and because some people's stuff is good, what it does for us as a company is it actually creates this wonderful pool of potential employees. And so in, in my department in particular at BioWare, a very large proportion of people have actually been hired out of the community. And these are very good content generators. And they come in and they make a great living going forward doing that type of work, but in-house instead of out-of-house. It's also important to realize that people who have uh, who've, uh, contri contributed material to our community as well can be identified as this is a good content generator, uh, uh, this is an exceptional content generator, so on and so forth. And sometimes we'll parcel out contracts to those people to expand upon their work, um, upload the material for them, for not just for other people to experience, but also for resale. So they'll get a contract, we'll pay them to produce more material. Um, and what it does is it, 
it, is it just generates more stuff uh, um, for, for the community to consume. So I think up to this point, if, uh, if my current numbers are right, uh, about 4,400 Neverwinter community modules uh, have been uh, created, let's say. I, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a pretty accurate number. Uh, and um, that, that, that's a lot of extra material uh, you know, for, for people to consume. So after, after they've consumed the game as initially designed, uh, and listen, Neverwinter came out five years ago, uh, you know, average, life, average shelf time for a game uh, that's, that's on sale, is, uh, the sales cycle is such that you'll usually hit most of your sales in the first uh, three weeks and then it'll tail off, and you'll have some sales for about six months, and then you're pretty much in the bargain bin after that. Neverwinter, because of its community-building aspect and the strong user tool set, is now in its fifth edition and is still uh, high in the charts for PC game sales. It's, it's quite remarkable. So um, I, I guess the way that I would just sum up my comments to you is that it's, it's not... It's not bad that some material or a lot of material that's produced is bad. The fact is, is that some of it's good. And uh, I think the other part of your question was, when is it important that it all be good? Um, from business model perspective, for us, it's not necessary. I'd, I'd say that's true on Flickr as well. I mean, like I take, you know, fairly actually tried to bring up my photo stream up here to show you exactly how crappy my photos are. Um, <laughs> but my photos are pretty, my, my, my photos are pretty consistently crappy. I take them with my um, camera phone. Where the hell is it? Um, I take them with my camera phone and they're really as a means of communication with other people. You know, like I just took a, a picture of the kind of MIT Media Lab on the podium there just to indicate that I had arrived safely and, you know, here I was, um, um, you know, in Boston. And uh, the... You know, like ninety-five percent of everything is crap, right? So you know, you go in the bookstore, and you know, ninety-five percent of those titles are probably crap, or they're not, you know, relevant to you. They may not be crap to somebody else, um, but they're essentially crap to you. And um, you know, the, the 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 thing you're really trying to do is, you know, kind of create a system in which you can find, you know, that five percent that you're interested in. You know that that's really kind of what these systems are for. You know, like the like like the example I gave earlier, the monster truck people think that photos on Flickr are very like the ones that they think are good are very different from the other people. So, um, it, it, you know, I think that the the kind of the breadth of the content is actually a, a good thing. And you know, the fact that you know a lot of people are uploading, you know, just family photos or things that are unimportant or you know a picture of their slice of pizza they're having for lunch, um, you know, may not pertain to you, but it's not really meant, you know, it's not really meant to, so. The designation of good and bad is, I think that's an artifact of a bygone era when there was scarcity in distribution and a, design, a designation needed to be made because someone needed to make a selection about what was going to be promoted and shown to an audience. Uh, in a two-way network, which is the kind of networks we're referring to now, well, a two-way network invites the possibility of a, of a dialogue and a possibility of exchange whereby people can create their own context. And that's the whole point of meta-tagging, you know, the, the, the ability to create comments around content, a layer of content about the content, gives people different contexts through which to perceive that content. In some cases, it's going to be perceived as good. In other cases, 
groups will perceive it in different ways. And that's an extraordinary, extraordinary shift. I mean, that's probably fundamentally the most important distinction between participatory culture and, and programmed or broadcast media, uh, which is that the audiences can designate what they deem to be valuable or not relevant, uh, and they make that distinction themselves. Isn't that what Flickr is? I mean, we're looking at pictures that are individual people are creating photo streams that intersect and weave in interesting ways. That's what Katarina's clicking on here to show us that. So it's a dialogue of sorts. Another example would be, you, you know, on YouTube. Our connection's dead. If you look at, um, <laughs> so you if you look at uh, Lonely Girl 15, those videos, which I find really weird because they're produced. So that's, you know, someone tried to manipulate the system to produce a show for whatever reason. And I didn't follow the whole drama because it wasn't that interesting to me. Uh, what is interesting about Lonely Girl 15 is all the people who posted their own videos in response to Lonely Girl 15, many of them commenting about how stupid it is. That's extremely interesting to me, right? That's kind of your idea, right? It's, it's a little bit like a coral reef. You know, a ship sinks and there's some thing there and now all of a sudden uh, this whole reef forms and now a whole ecology grows around that thing. Lonely Girl 15 being the sunken ship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Hi, um, Nabil Hyatt with uh, Conduit Games, which is a browser-based MMOG uh, platform. And I, I wanted to ask a little bit of a question about the line between what is or is not a game, because um, you're all reliant, everyone up there is kind of reliant on user-generated content. And what that means, of course, is that you're trying to incentivize that user-generated content. Um, I've heard more than one person refer back to, um, actually I hear it over and over again, refer back to the fact that Flickr started out, um, your company started out with the idea of a game. Um, and that's slowly moved away from that. Um, you know, Kevin is very much in game land. And, uh, and just, I'd love you all to comment a little bit about how you incentivize um, user-generated content. What do you do? Um, I think interestingness is one example of how you can incentivize people to want to get involved. Um, Kevin, I'm not sure what exactly you do with, the, with your audience to get them involved, but um, I love talking about how do you try and make sure that people don't just sit on the sidelines. Um, I'll, I'll do a, a quick uh, preamble and then, I, then, uh, then let it over. Uh, when a company like Bioware decides that they're going to build a community uh, they want user-generated content. There's a, a, a specific and very, very painful decision that occurs during development, which is we're going to release a user-friendly tool set, um, and that will consume uh, people's lives for many, many years uh, to produce that uh, in a, uh, a, a gruesome death dance that uh, <laughs> finally ends in their disillusionment with the entire world. But, <laughs> sorry, it's not that grave. But uh, it, 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 is, uh, it is absolutely a, a conscious decision that, um, that the, the tool set is going to be created. It has to be user friendly. Uh, therefore, um, like if you look at the, the user tool set for Oblivion, let's say the Bethesda role playing game that just came out recently. Um, what they did uh, is they said, 
uh, okay, here's every variable in the game. You have access to everything. You can go in there. You can change, change gravity. You can change uh, how much damage is dealt by insects. You can change the chemical properties of plants. You can uh, change the color of the sky. You can, like, uh, there's hundreds of thousands of variables that are open to manipulation, and thus the game, when approached by a, uh, an amateur or, or an end user, um, can break the game like that. Like they, they, you don't have to do much. You can change the universal gravity constant. Not, that'll, like, that'll wreck your game right there. Everyone flies off the world, and you're, and you're done, right? Um, so so uh, when, when, you, when you make a conscious decision that not only are we going to release an end user tool set, but one that is going to make people feel smart and allow them the greatest probability of making something good, um, it becomes a choice, uh, it becomes a process of providing a wide breadth of variety of stuff that they can do and then going into each individual piece and tailoring it and lovingly taking care of it so that the guy can't break it. Um, uh, and uh, and that, that's, that's, a long, that's a long process. I wasn't involved in it, thank God. I'd like to, can we move down the panel to talk about this incentivizing participation? Because I think we have similarities but also some, some distinctions. So what motivates people to participate in, in, in these projects? Well, I think in case uh, of the Vol project was uh, just people's frustration towards advertising. I mean, that, that was my frustration uh, that I felt that I needed some kind of a, uh, a device that would facilitate for them to, for people to have a chance to talk back at uh, the stuff that are just thrown down to our throat. So that was the, the motivation, and I think that's the universal connection that people had. Is the anonymous nature of the, of the on-street project? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The anonymous well? nature was a very important aspect, uh, because I don't think there's many opportunities that people f uh, uh, have of really expressing their freedom of speech, mm. and people really f feel that they can write anything, and you know, I document everything that people write, and that's, I think that's a big part of it as well. Karina? I mean, I think this is just a really basic human need. I have an 18-month-old nephew who is right now going through that phase where, you know, he points at something. He just, like, it's nothing in particular. I mean, it's, he, he'll, he'll, he'll kind of wander around the house and he'll say, look, and it'll be the bookshelf that's, you know, always been there. And he'll, look, <laughs> look, you know, and I think that there's this, like, very basic human need to share your experience, to show things to other people. And I think that's really what's contributing, you know, to people contributing their stuff to Flickr or to, you know, blogs or to other things. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's this desire to connect with other people. It's a de desire to share. It's a desire to kind of have your perspective seen and understood. And um, I, you know, I just think that's a, it's just a basic human urge. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, right? That's like that's kind of like advanced level of what I'm describing. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I do think that we did end up with you know massively multiplayer photo sharing. I mean, that's really what's going on here. And and if you look at you know these groups, I actually brought up a bunch of these groups because I wanted to show you because this is we when we made groups, we anticipated that people would use them for weddings and reunions and 
you know, black and white photography, things like that. We did not anticipate that people would use them for games. And you know, here's, an, here's a great example. You know, if anybody has a photograph of 348, this group is waiting for your photograph. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we've got, you know, these are like consecutive numbers. Like, like how fun is that? Like, you know, there's people like running around, like looking for the next number in the sequence. You know, there's a bun bunch of groups like this. So, you know, there's one that's up to like the 2000s. So, uh, you know, that's for really super advanced level, you know, 70 players. And then we have, you know, this group, which is, you know, we have this feature where you can annotate things and, um, smelly stuff, like what's in my bag? Like this is you know, kind of this group that formed where people just kind of empty out their bag and they take a photograph and then they kind of explain what all their crap is. And then, you know, transparent screens. I wanted to bring this up because it's so much fun. Um, you know, these people are taking, you basically you know, take a photograph of something, then you kind of like make it your background and then you put your, your, your damn it. <laughs> we can't get any of these, but you know, it's just, all these things are just fun. And, you know, it, it's kind of like changed photography from being this. Like I have these, you know, kind of like iconic photos of my grandparents where they're in, you know, kind of like the, the photo studio. Like, even myself as a youth, I'm in like, you know, the Sears family photo thing and we all, you know, we kind of like sit there. And, and, and it used to be that photography was, was that. But now people are taking photos for these things in order to participate in, in these things, which is a very different behavior. So, um, you know, kind of creating an open system whereby people can be really playful and inventive, um, you know, I, I, I think has driven an incredible amount of participation. I think in social behavior, people are trying to meet some fundamental human needs. And um, there are a lot of ways to look at human needs as a Maslow diagram. There's, uh, Tony Robbins told me about the six human needs as he sees it starting with uh, the need for certainty, which is the need to know some things in my life are going to be for sure. Uh, and then conversely, there's a need for variety. And you can certainly see that in a social network, you can get both, right? Because there's the people you know and you're connected to, and then there's a variety of meeting new people. The next set of needs is the need for significance and the need for connection. The need for significance, of course, is the need to be different, to stand out from people. And that's what you know, pimping out your MySpace page is all about. Uh, of course, the need for connection is satisfied by having 40,000 people linked to that page then, and so you're not that different after all. Uh, the next two sets of needs are those of growth and contribution, and these are a little bit more evolved past the first two sets. Uh, and the need for growth is to, the ability to extend yourself and, and expand uh, your repertoire. I see great potential for social networking in particular, but also for open source software projects. This is a place for us to try new things to learn new things and rely on that group as a support mechanism as we extend ourselves into new areas where we may lack expertise, but others may be able to contribute it. And the last piece, then, contribution fits nicely with that concept, is contribution is where we achieve fulfillment in our lives. Contribution is where we, we get the, the sense that we've actually been able to give back something. And any time you've been able to teach someone else something, you know exactly the feeling of the sensation that I'm talking about. And that can also occur in an open source software project and in a collaborative social environment. And so I see great potential for uh, social networking in specific, but any kind of collaborative effort uh, to fulfill these human needs and any human, anything that satisfies those needs, of course, gives us a tremendous sense of gratification, fulfillment, and, uh, and a feeling of, fulfill, a feeling of you know, satisfaction. So my sense is that that's a great deal of why this is happening. We can talk about sites like Rever that are trying to compensate people monetarily. I think it's ultimately insignificant. That is not the driver. That's not why people are doing this stuff. Back to the earlier question, there's a question about the cultural product from someone in the back there. Uh, I think that's really the wrong way to look at this because this is not at all about the product. 
Uh, when we think about you know, your MySpace page or your photos on Flickr or your contribution to some lines of code to Linux, uh, if you're thinking about it as the product, you're thinking of it the wrong way because that's, that's, a, that's a consumption mode. This is not a consumption mode. This is participation mode. And the distinction I'd make is the word painting. I use the word painting as an analogy. A painting can be a noun and it can also be a verb. And when we think of a painting as a noun, we're thinking of it as, as a cultural product. We're thinking that typically something you might collect or purchase or a thing that shows up in a museum. And I guarantee you, if anyone in the audience is a painter, I'm a painter, anyone who paints for themselves never thinks of the word painting as a noun. They always think of it as a verb. And in participatory media, it's all about the verb. It's all about the doing and not the cultural product. So I don't believe anyone is participating in these activities for gain of any sort, monetary gain or even you know, some sort of like product gain that they can accumulate. Uh, they're, they're doing it for other reasons, and it's most important that they're doing and not consuming. Here. Um, hi, I'm Carantha. I'm from OMD, and I work on multiple accounts, but one of them is the new CW, so all that's a little crazy. But um, <laughs> I, um, from media planning and um, advertising side, and, and it was slightly addressed in, in the Google AdSense words, but we're getting a lot of mixed messages as to whether or not we're welcome or unwelcome. And in some cases, it seems like the user-generated content is directly against advertising, and advertising makes it an unpure space. And, in, and then on the other side, we're getting our doors knocked on by sales reps trying to get us into the space because we're also funding the space in a lot of ways. So um, I guess I just wanted to ask the panel, from your point of view, are we welcome? Are we not welcome? And in what ways are we welcome? I, w I wanted to bring up this site, but I can't because someone's downloading Desperate Housewives back there. <laughs> but um, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really great example that I wanted to show of um, how advertising and user-generated content can work together. And, the, and there's this thing called um, when you actually have a live connection somewhere, go check it out. It's a Nikon stunning gallery. And they have collaborated with, and they basically got in touch with a lot of um, Flickr users and you know, gave them their new camera and um, gave them the opportunity to go out and take pictures of themselves, their lives, whatever, they, whatever it is that they take, take photographs of. And um, you know, posted them on this, this website and then used them in their commercials and um, you know, basically kind of cultivated all of this wonderful um, you know, this wonderful photography, you know, using this new camera that they wanted to promote. And I thought that that was the, like the perfect kind of intersection of, you know, commerce, user-generated content and art. And um, they've been doing a fantastic, fantastic job of that. And I think it, it, it involves a little bit more creative thinking. Um, it's a little bit more difficult. It involves a lot more coordination and, you know, kind of, you know, contact with actual, um, you know, consumers or, you know, users or, you know, content creators. Um, and so it, it takes a little bit more uh, legwork than just kind of slapping up an ad. But um, it, I, I think that the, the kind of authenticity and the, the, the kind of like the true connection that you can, you can, you can get with, um, you know, consumers or users of your product, um, you know, pays off big time. So I do, th I mean, there's, there's a place for it. And I think that, um, you know, it's not, you know, kind of slapping an ad, you know, against the content. I think that that's really the, way, the wrong way to go about it. I think it's really kind of involving and engaging um, people in the creation of, um, you know, whatever the message is. So for the game sites, would you be open to a character that had like a Veronica Mars where that you could pick that as your character or open to objects that they could make that are products 
or is that something that you feel isn't welcome in the game world? Uh, at, uh, at, at BioWare, <laughs> we're starting to explore uh, in-game advertising. Um, there is a strong cultural push within our company to ensure that there is no intrusive uh, advertising message that comes through. I mean, if you think of, think of the movie uh, Blade Runner, uh, and uh, you know the, the air car is flying through the city and you see kind of a, a big neon screen with a Coke ad on it and stuff like that. Um, you know, there, there's, there's product placement in a movie. We, we all anticipate that every movie now is gonna have some sort of product placement to either artistically grounded in the real world or from a monetary point of view to get in revenue, I suppose. Um, but on the game side, uh, it is uh, so it's imperative uh, for us when we're developing a world uh, not to uh, break that uh, suspension of disbelief uh, with the player. Um, you have uh, many people here have been talking about trust, building trust with their communities, uh, sites that uh, where their users feel safe, and so on and so forth. Um, if we, uh, you know. We've got this game, Dragon Age, coming out. There's a medieval fantasy game, and you're going to run out into this world and take care of all sorts of nastiness and uh, yeah, pick up a Coke at the, uh, at the tavern. <laughs> uh, boy, the backlash would be incredible. We couldn't, we couldn't tolerate it. We wouldn't even introduce it. We wouldn't introduce the idea. So uh, if anything of that sort was to happen, it would have to be so completely in context and so well woven into that world as to be transparent like the air car flying through the, uh, the Blade Runner landscape. You're expecting to see that big Coke ad come up, and there it is, and then you fly past it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, okay. And you know, you also be, have to be prepared for the Bubble Project sticker brigade to be coming along. In, so <laughs> the bubble in, in the game, uh, it's like a couple yeah. of texture mods get thrown in there. <laughs> I wonder if there's any research done on whether people liked the ads more or remembered the ads more because of the bubbles. I, I, I truly believe this is uh, it's a win-win situation. Uh, I think the advertiser should welcome because you know, without it, it's. It's, it's boring old ads, and with it, <laughs> they get more, more look at it. But I think one of the uh, interesting thing about the user-generated content is the unexpectedness that things happen. I don't think you ever imagined that, you know, transparent screens be part of your content when you were thinking about it. And uh, I think that is the beauty of it that you just throw things out there, just things happen organically, and uh, um, I think that's you know something. It's, again, it's giving up the control and let the, let it let it happen. Chris, lucky last. I'm, I'm Chris Weaver, again, both MIT, and I also have a little bit of a background in the games industry, having created Bethesda Softworks. Kevin. Um, in any event, the... Uh, How you doing? Um, in terms of laws of unintended consequences, but consequences that can be very positive, as opposed to just negative, a very quick story where the second chapter in the Elder Scrolls series, which was called Daggerfall, was designed with a very typical, understandable quest. There was a quest for seven pieces, and you had to put them together, and yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing about what we found is that we started getting reg cards from a number of people who were over 65. Now, this is not considered a normal gaming populace, especially for role-playing. And it was so interesting that we decided to call a few of these people. And Almost to a person, 
they had been given the game along with a computer by their children. And they were generally people who were now housebound, who at one time had enjoyed travel. And what we found is that these people liked to create a character that was totally to themselves from the standpoint of not being participatory in the ways we expected, such as instead of becoming a mage or a wizard, they would become sort of a religious person and walk around being an itinerant priest. And the reason was that they could interact with people and have social interaction without being forced to exchange blows or other things that we might have expected otherwise. And more importantly, as taking up where Katarina had said something before, they didn't give a damn about the quest. They simply wanted to go on a pilgrimage. And they would walk by the streams where we had taken the pains to put little fish if you just waited for a little while. And they would remind us of all the detail that we had put into the game that in many, way we, in many ways we had forgotten about because we had put it in for other purposes. But they used it for their purpose. And what that taught us is that the more you attempt to constrain users, the more the users will demonstrate that they are going to break your constraint. So having said that, I'll point to Kevin for just a moment in terms of the Oblivion toolset. The Oblivion toolset was put in with the very natural understanding that people would use it to break the game. For the same reason that when we created a football game called Gridiron, which ended up creating uh, the reason that we were asked to create John Madden Football, the first one for Electronic Arts, was that people can go outside the lines. They can go outside the boundaries. And they can win the football game by going outside the boundaries. And they would write to us and they would say, we demand that you put the boundaries as up a wall so that you can't run outside the boundaries. In our position, very similar to Daggerfall or, or Arena or Morrowind or Oblivion, was the same thing, which is, it's a free world. Break it as you will. So you have to be very, very careful about this concept of constraint. Because constraint, like so many other wonderful things in prosaic nature, has to be done very, very carefully. The moment that you make a user feel constrained, the user's going to take offense at that. And so that leads me really to the question, as opposed to just the statement, which was, we talked about meta-tagging. And I just had a general question when it comes to good and bad, which is, meta-tagging by its nature is wonderful, because you get the benefit of user content on a per-user basis to give you more information about that particular item. My problem is, is that if I don't intend to go into grays, how do I determine good versus bad when there isn't any kind of search engine for me within that meta-tagging as exists currently, that I, that I'm, of which I'm aware, where I can get some sort of a rating? And rating, of course, becomes very you know, uh, qualitative by its nature. But you know, for instance, I go into Flickr for Tokyo, and I really don't want to look at 675,000 pictures for the same reason that I don't want to listen to most people's telephone calls. How do I find those 100 brilliant Tokyo pictures? What do I do? Well, I think that's Web 3.0. That's what people are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> We're all trying to crack the code. <laughs> But what do I do now? Because we're not even in 2.0. So what do I do now? I mean, I've got my button. It says 2010. I can't wait. OK, I can't wait till 2010. I want to find my Tokyo pictures now. What do I do? I don't have the answer for that. 
You, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of work that's being done on um, personalization. And I think that's a, in some, to some extent, that's, that's sort of what you're talking about. You're saying, um, and you know, I was working for a while on a product at Yahoo called MyWeb. And what that did was it basically scoped your search results to things that you would be interested in. So I'm you know, kind of like a urbanite, kind of 30-something somebody. And I run a search for cool lamp on Google. Believe me, those lamps are not cool. And um, you know, cool is a very qualitative thing. Cool is something that I understand, and probably like you know my, you know the the those 250 people in my tribe or whatever understand as well. They understand what a cool lamp would be. And the thing that was amazing about my web is that I would run a search for cool lamp, and it would find me lamps that I actually thought were cool. And this was an amazing thing. And what, the reason it was doing that was, it was because it was constraining my search results to bookmarks that people that I knew or were part of my social network had bookmarked. And this was a phenomenal thing. And um, you know, this is the future. This is, this is the way that things are evolving. This is the way that software is evolving. And you know, you know, you know, God bless them, the monster truck people have a completely different concept of what a cool lamp is from me. And, you know, but that's a cool lamp to them, and that's a perfectly appropriate search result for cool lamp. You know, it's probably like a Harley Davidson, beer light, I don't know, like, you know, and that, and that you know, is, is a cool lamp to them. And I, and I think that that's what's going to be happening more and more. You're going to be seeing, um, you know, software that does that. Does, uh, sorry, sorry. Does 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 Movie Lens uh, approach kind of uh, what you're looking for? If if uh, Movie Lens is that uh, is that site where you can go in and uh, they have a database of, of movies and uh, you can sit there and rate 100, 200, 300 movies that you've seen and you can rate them from one to five stars. And then what the site does is it matches up your movie preferences inside of its database to other people who have also uh, shown the same preferences for those same movies. And then it, uh, what it does is it collects those other people's uh, 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 preferences and gives it projects what, what MovieLens believes you would enjoy in the current crop of movies. So if, uh, if I liked uh, uh, Terminator and Pride, Pride and Prejudice and uh, uh, Little Women, uh, and I rated all three of those movies as, as five stars out of five, and uh, 15 other people on Movie Lens also rated those three, and they also re and they rated uh, uh, this uh, Scorsese, new Scorsese film, The Departed. If they also rated Departed as five out of five, I haven't seen The Departed yet, it would show up on my site as a potential five out of five because other people who had the same preferences also liked that movie as well, but I hadn't seen it yet. Well, um, Which is similar to Amazon.com. Yeah. yeah, but Amazon, see, Amazon right now is giving a million-dollar bounty to the person who can, I'm sorry, is it Netflix? Sorry. Um, who's giving a million-dollar bounty to better that equation. And maybe the algorithm ultimately is not so much yours as towards what Katarina's talking about, which I guess to a certain extent seeds a bit of privacy, doesn't it? Because like the AOL search that you're talking about is if you're, if oh, yeah, you know, you have to contribute the content to it, otherwise it's not going to work. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Which, I'm just going to butt in here for a second, because that you have to contribute the content or it's not going to work is actually a lovely place to finish. Um, it's, I, I hate to cut you off, Chris. Um, it's after four. So if we can thank the panel.